Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 25, Episode 23. Coming up on this show, we've got Black Ops fruit smuggling, cellular chicken nugget memories, and the plot to erase MH370. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. I have this incredibly serious, groundbreaking book that I'm going to do. I'm so excited to share this with you. And you start with cellular chicken nugget memories. Yes. <laughs> I don't see a problem with this. I like that there's often, I found this correlation between how uh, decrepit you look, how uh, messy you look, and the excellence of your segments. Like, you right now look like Mel Gibson at the end of a Lethal Weapon movie. You've been doing so much research, you look like you've just taken out 100 bad guys. I have spent a couple of days working on this on very little sleep, thanks to my four-month-old deciding that he doesn't want to sleep for more than an hour at a time, so I am quite exhausted. Yeah. But Dishevelled was the word I was thinking I'm of. I'm not dishevelled. I'm extremely clean cut, decrepit. thank you. <laughs> I meant dishevelled. You know, like that dishevelled <laughs> conspiracy look, not decrepit. Of course, yeah, not decrepit. No, <laughs> like your hair's all over the place, like you've just stuck your finger in a socket because you've been researching so hard. This is incredible. So I was going to pick up this book and just read it personally. I wasn't even thinking about doing it for the show. But after I started getting into it, I realised just how important this is because this book, The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370 by Florence Tachangi, this isn't really, I mean, obviously the whole book is about MH370 and what possibly took place with this, you know, terrible disaster and this tragedy. And we still don't know what happened to the aircraft officially. But it's more than that. It's about the power struggles in the world. It's about exactly what we talk about on Mysterious Universe for so many years. It became so apparent to me reading this book that the official narrative that we are told by the mainstream media, by big tech oligarchs, by anyone you can possibly imagine in the government, it is most likely wrong. We are not told the truth. Sounds like someone's been reading some conspiracy theories. This is the thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I know people accuse us of like, oh, you guys are crossing <laughs> into conspiracy theories. What do you think the UFO phenomenon is? What do you think it has been for 60 or 70 years? It has been a massive cover-up. And when you look at something like this book that Florence has written, I just cannot rate it high enough in being one of those books that will open up your eyes to the world. And recently, I'm not talking, let's forget about 60, 70 years ago from the UFO phenomenon. Let's look at what's happening in the world right now in the last, you know, less than 10 years. Yeah. The power struggles that are taking place, the people that we think are good that are bad, the people that we think are bad that are good. You know, it's just all revealed here in this incredible really? research that was put together by Florence. Well, I, I saw a blurb about her book a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in, it might have been in New Dawn magazine, actually. Mm -hmm. And, or maybe it was even Nexus magazine, but just just the setup of what she had discovered. Uh, is, is the foundation of this that she was hired by a French newspaper to, yeah. to look into the story? And it just, it snowballed. And now we have all this incredible research, but some of the speculations she was making based on, what is it, years now of research? Years of research, yeah. I, I, I'm so glad you're covering Look. this because it looked very <laughs> dense. And But I, I kind of skipped it. I have to admit, I skipped ahead to some of her conclusions. And you're right, it's it's pretty explosive. Groundbreaking, absolutely groundbreaking. And as I said, I'll link to this book in the show notes so you can pick it up for yourself. I'm going to give you the highlights of some of these details. I'm not going to go through you know everything because there is just so much here. It's slightly a larger book. Well, it connects uh, Australian politics and espionage and all sorts of conspiracy theories and it's, the big players on the world stage. It's, it yeah. really does. It really does. And it's a little bit unsettling at the same time, considering that Australia is actually, we are uh, approaching what appears to be actual conflict with China at the moment. Uh, I know the Australian Prime Minister has only recently spoken at the G7 conference and has said that we are going to not 
deal with you know, the way that China is expanding out through the world and what they're doing. We want to know about what happened with COVID. And even Japan has turned around and said, oh, no, they're going to back us up as well. So big things are happening in the world, let alone what's happening over in the US. But when you find out from this book all the intrigue and all the hidden information, mm. you start questioning is anything we've been told in the last 10 years real? Well, those are the questions I was asking when I was discovering cellular chicken nugget memories. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they, I'm sure today. It was, yeah. I'm going to be going into the work from Claire Sylvia. It's a book from 1997. And Claire was the first case in New England of a, uh, a heart-lung transplant. Mm-hmm. She was the first recipient of that, you know, very dangerous, very rare surgery. And she survived. And her story... This, this memoir here is really what set in motion the research that followed from uh, uh, people like uh, Dr. Paul Pearsall that seemed to show the existence of cellular memories. Right. So this is where people will have an organ transplant and for some reason they'll have memories of the person that had been the donor. Not, not traits. Not so much memories, but some traits appear. Sometimes it's memories. But in her example, because she was the first... Uh, case of this transplant for the state of New England, the the press was involved. The press was very interested. So there was TV crews down there. There were reporters interviewing her once she had recovered sufficiently. And in one of the first interviews she did, she was asked by the journalist, you know, what are, what are you looking forward to getting back to now that you've got your health back and you're so, you've got this new heart and this new set of lungs? And she said, oh, yeah, I just can't wait to do normal things like you know, be able to walk around without losing breath and, and spend time with my daughter and go shopping by myself and just, I can't wait to get back to normal life. And the journalist obviously wanted a, you know, something more than that. And he basically said, well, what, what would you like to do? What's the thing you would like to do the most right now? And she kind of looked at the camera and said, I just want some chicken and beer, <laughs> some chicken nuggets. Where she specifically said, I want some chicken nuggets. And as soon as it came out of her mouth, she thought, I don't even, why did I say that? I don't even like beer. And why do I want chicken nuggets? <laughs> and she just didn't know where this feeling had come from. But she said in her mind was just this overpowering desire to drink like a nice cold crisp beer and just go and smash some chicken nuggets. And this was the start of a series of changes in her personality that seem to coincide with the transplant. Yeah, and it's important to note that because it's not just simple, you know, subtle changes in food preferences. It can be things that completely change your life. Well, it turned out her transplant was from a young man Mm -hmm. and she noticed all sorts of masculine traits start to appear. Yeah, I remember a story years ago of where a woman got, I believe it was the heart or the liver of a guy that had died in a motorcycle accident. And then after that, for whatever reason, she took on took up motorcycling. That's all she wanted to do. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, often the, the donors are from car accidents and motorcycle yeah. accidents. Yeah, yeah. So they get those traits coming through. Look, I'm really looking forward to that coming up a little bit later on, but let's get into the disappearing act, the impossible case of MH370 by Florence Tichangi. And, you know, as I was saying, Ben, you know, the way that she's written this book, I have to highlight that she's done incredible research. The hypothesis that she comes up with towards the end of the book, which I will, will talk to you about, it is a hypothesis, but it is based on these clues, these very detailed clues that she's picked up through her research. And as you pointed out, Ben, that she was working for a French newspaper by the name of Le Monde. And she said she was asked to go to Kuala Lumpur where... You know, already the disappearance had become the greatest mystery in the history of aviation. But she opens up with one of these quotes at the start of the book, which kind of sets the scene for 
a lot of the things that she's going to be describing. And this was a quote by Adam Curtis. Uh, He said this back in 2016. He said, we live in a world where the powerful deceive us. We know they lie. They know that we know they lie. They don't care. We say we care, but we do nothing. Yeah, they just do everything anyway. I totally <laughs> yeah, agree a great with that. Quote. That's exactly what we're doing. So let's have a look at the official narrative of what MH370 was and what we know of the disappearance of this vessel. And we know when I say vessel, it's an aircraft. So we're going back to March 2014. It was the right? 7th of March 2014. And the uh, Malaysian Airlines 777 airliner took off. I think it was uh, it was only you know, about a decade old. It wasn't a significantly advanced age aircraft. It was quite uh, you know technologically advanced. The triple sevens, Boeing triple sevens, have a uh, really good history of being very safe, very technologically advanced and safe aircraft. So there wasn't any sign that there were any problems in this routine flight that was flying from Malaysia from Kuala Lumpur into Beijing on that evening. Now, the story goes is that the aircraft took off and most people settled in for their flight that evening because it was a nighttime flight. It was around midnight. And as they settled in, the cabin lights were dimmed and people weren't eating their meals. And what we hear is that the pilot was transitioning into Vietnamese airspace. And as he closed off from Malaysian airspace, the last thing he said was uh, something like, MH370, good night. And then that was it, right? So the next thing which is supposed to take place is that the fl- the plane will then contact the air traffic controllers in Vietnam to handle the takeover to announce that they've entered into Vietnamese airspace and continue their journey. That contact never came. Never came. Now, the official narrative is, is that for whatever reason, the transponder was switched off in the aircraft and it had this, like, it took two phases for the uh, switching off to take place, which is odd because normally if you switch it off, the whole thing just switches off. There's two types of systems that are built into this thing. So the first, the call sign switched off and then the squawk number or the number of the aircraft switched off around 30 seconds later. Right. A very odd thing to take Is place. this something that the pilot can manually do? It can, right? But the pilots are not trained to do this. They are not trained to switch this thing off on purpose because you want your transponder to be going all the time. But one thing that we hear about aviation is that an aircraft is a tool and a pilot has to have the capabilities to control absolutely everything in the aircraft. You can't have anything which is limited to a pilot because a pilot, who knows what circumstances or situations can take place, a pilot needs to be able to do anything. So Florence points out that with a little bit of research, he would have been able to research how to turn this off and do this. So the the story says is that all of a sudden it took a U-turn and then disappeared off towards the uh, Indian Ocean. And what we know is that when it disappeared and obviously it didn't land in Beijing, people started frantically looking for it. There were reports coming out from air traffic controllers that they hadn't seen it, that it had just simply disappeared. Days later, or even I think it was up to a week later, a, a company called Imarsat had announced that they might have some information regarding where this aircraft was because Imarsat technology was on board MH370. And what this was is that even though the transponder was switched off on the aircraft, the aircraft continued to every hour ping a satellite that was owned by Imarsat. Now, Imarsat says that using this ping data, they would be able to work at an arc of where possibly the aircraft had disappeared to. Right. Now, they claim that this arc had followed an arc that f- flew directly into the Indian Ocean, the southern Indian Ocean, and it had obviously, the story was, is that the, something had caused the pilot to become incapacitated, and then the plane had obviously flown for a certain number of hours until it ran out of fuel and crashed into the south Indian Ocean. 
That's the story that we know. And there are all sorts of versions, like he, he committed range. suicide he committed, yeah. or he was drunk. Well, look, one of the ones was, and this is information that has been confirmed, is that there was some, obviously with analysis of data afterwards, they were able to see that the aircraft travelled up to an extremely high altitude that was beyond the capabilities of a uh, B777 aircraft, a Boeing 777 aircraft, and then it flew down extremely low. And the theory was is that he flew up, he was clearly a suicidal captain. He had flown up to an altitude that was, uh, you know, extremely high where he could depressurize the aircraft and then allow the uh, oxygen mass to drop down. But those oxygen masks, the way that they generate oxygen is through a chemical reaction. So once that mass drops down, I think there's only 20 minutes or so of oxygen that's yeah. available to you. So once that was expired, then people would experience hypoxia and would have died within moments. It's actually not a bad way to go, but it's still horrible but hypoxia isn't necessarily a bad way to go. Once everyone had been incapacitated on the flight, he then flew down to an extremely low altitude to avoid radar so that he could crash the plight, the, the plane. And the thing is, is that obviously there have been massive investigations into the pilot's history and who he is. And all that we've found out about this pilot is that the man seems to be a man of principles. He never had ex- expressed any kind of extremism before. I know that we live in a world of, of post-terrorism and you know people crashing aircraft into buildings and other locations and these things can take place. He had never given any indication that he had that kind of intent. On top of that, when they recovered a flight simulator from his home, they had found that he had flown to several air bases that were in that area. But that doesn't suggest that he was trying to learn how to, how to avoid radar or fly into yeah. the, the southern Indian Ocean. All very, very odd. And when you start picking apart the narrative, you start to see that there are things that simply don't add up. And, you know, this is one thing that Florence asks. Why? Why is it this? Why is it in this modern age? And this is something that occurred to me, and I totally agree with her. In this modern age, massive airliners simply do not disappear. They do not disappear. They cannot disappear. Even with their technology, even with turning things off, the amount of radar that was in that region where that aircraft was flying through and they weren't able to track it, it suggests that something deliberately has been done to cover up the disappearance of MH370. Mm. And why would they do that? Who would want to cover up the disappearance of this aircraft? Now, most of the passengers on board were Chinese. There were some Malays. There were, uh, I think, two Australians. And there were six Americans that were aboard this, this aircraft. For whatever reason, after the search, the search initially had focused on the South China Sea because some of the information that was coming through was that it was likely that the aircraft may have crashed in the South China Sea, but no one was sure. Right? There was so much confusion at the time that was Eventually, coming out. Australia was leading the search for the debris, <laughs> That's right? That's exactly right. That's why I right. remember the story. That's exactly right. So Australia, for whatever reason, uh, the ATSB, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, actually took over the search for the missing aircraft. Now, Florence says, and this is what's really important, it took her two years to spot flaws and inconsistencies in the official narrative. This isn't something where she looked and went, oh, that's not right. It took her two years to find the holes. And she said it then took her a further three years of speaking with witnesses to find out what her theory could be about what took place here. So the Malaysians actually did a briefing. And when the Malaysians did a briefing, and I actually remember this, this is a funny thing. The Malaysians did a press conference and the press conference, they said, we know things we can't tell you. And at the time, I remember thinking something along the lines of, oh, that makes sense. You know, like maybe if terrorism is involved, it would make sense that they're going to keep quiet about certain things until they have more details. But it seems like it's something else. Now, the US, the UK, China, Australia, Boeing, Rolls-Royce, reps from Singapore and Malaysia, they were all called in 
to investigate the disappearance. And the reason why Boeing obviously and Rolls-Royce was involved is because... Their aircraft, their engines, right? Exactly. Exactly. They want to show that it's not their craft at fault. Very important, right? You know, when you have a very reliable aircraft disappear, uh, it's vitally important to the shareholder that they maintain that their aircraft are reliable. So if anything happens, immediately Boeing and Rolls-Royce are on it. And in fact, uh, not only is the information from that transponder being sent back to Malaysian Airlines, it's also every aircraft that is like Boeing, for example, that transponder information also goes back to Boeing headquarters as well. Right. So they're receiving all that data. So they know exactly what's going on with their aircraft. And yet it just simply disappeared when the transponder was turned off. So the um, many authorities requested access to all the data that was held by Malaysia. Yet for some reason, Malaysia was very reluctant to give up their information. It was very odd, even though they knew that there were something like 42 ships and 32 planes, or sorry, 39 planes in the South China Sea that were looking for this aircraft. They knew that something had taken place in the Gulf of Thailand because there were locals, there were villages, you know, some, some from very poor villages as well that were, and that's important, that comes up later, but they were reporting that, look, there's, there was a low-flying plane and some people even reported that they saw a plane that was on fire and they were just readily dismissed, like just readily dismissed and ignored. There was also a man that was working in New Zealander by the name of Michael J. Mackay. Mackay was this New Zealand oil worker. He's 57 years old. He was working on an oil rig that was off the Gulf of Thailand, and he went out for a cigarette break late one evening. Obviously, it would have been about one or maybe two o'clock in the morning. Mm. He said he saw what appeared to be a jetliner on fire. Wow. And it was heading southeast towards Vietnam. Now, a few days after, in this precise, in this precise location, there was a large oil slick that was seen, and this was confirmed uh, off the coast of Vietnam. So how come, from my memory, we were searching south of Australia. We were searching near Antarctica. Was that because of ocean currents? Or was there, I remember there being a suggestion that the plane had done an about face. That's correct. Completely turned around and headed south. So a part of the narrative, and this is why they were kind of pointing back towards it being uh, possibly terrorism, possibly extremism on the part of the pilot or someone on board. I mean, they were saying that someone on board had interfered in the aircraft, whether or not it was a pilot, they're not sure. There was some story that came out that suggested that the pilot had, uh, either broken up with his wife and had some massive gambling debt. So maybe this was a murder-suicide. Look, and that's a possibility. I don't think it is now after all this information that I'm going to present to you, but that is a possibility. You don't know what people do. If you recall, remember, I think it was German Wings, that young pilot that smashed, a, uh, I think it was, uh, it was an Airbus, he smashed into the Alps simply because he had an eyesight problem and he might not have been able to be a pilot. Mm. So the guy obviously was crazy, and he smashed the aircraft. So it is possible that people can be... Or it confirms his eyesight problem. Maybe he just didn't (laughs) see them out. No, that's awful. (laughs) No, no, he was was clearly crazy. Um, But you're right. I mean, uh, with this, what the, the report was is that apparently the aircraft, after switching off the transponder, had instantaneously, almost instantaneously, done a U-turn, had flown over Penang, which is where the pilot was from, and had dipped its wings as it had flown over to, over yeah. Penang to kind of look at the lights of Penang as like a final goodbye before it flew into the South, um, you know, Indian Ocean. And you're right. So the information that we got about why it flew into the South Indian Ocean is because of the Imarsat data. So the Imarsat data and that arc. So this is all we, we can't. And Imarsat, uh, they're a private company. Imarsat is a private company. They're like a uh, a military contractor. Right. And they work essentially. They say on their about page, and this is something that was highlighted, is that they say on their about page that they are there to serve the American government. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, or is it? We'll find out. So. 
as this plane flew away, there was, you know, it was gone. All these little details. And this is what happens, right? This is why it's really hard to do cover-ups because immediately people just do their jobs, right? People do their roles. Yeah. So you've got people that are doing things and this is strange. So there was a report from the China Times that a distress signal was actually picked up by a US army base in Thailand that had said that it was the pilot reporting that the aircraft was in distress. It was disintegrating and it needed to land. But this report was largely dismissed by Western media, right? And coming from China, there was some suspicion, and we know that, you know, China obviously doesn't always tell the truth. And so there was some suspicion that this was information that had been falsely provided by China to cause some uh, confusion to this entire mess. Sure. Why, though? Like, why would they do that? But Florence points out that this was actually corroborated by other people that she had interviewed in preparing for this book. So one thing is, is that she said the friend of the missing pilot, his name was Peter Chang, uh, he actually was flying in business class, right? And he was flying on an MH aircraft. This is after the, obviously, MH370 yeah. had disappeared. Now, he reported, and this was what was really odd, he reported that he was sitting in business class, and he says, as a gesture of goodwill, and obviously with his being a friend of the pilot of the missing aircraft, he said to the flight attendant, oh, um, can you just please give my condolences to the pilots and just tell them that I'm sorry and, you know, you know that kind of thing. And she's like, sure. She wanders back after a few minutes, if not even that, with a napkin. And on the napkin is like scrawled this information. And he looks at the napkin and it says something along the lines of uh, wreckage to your left. What? Now, he looks out through the window and he sees wreckage below where they were flying. Why would she do that? It's like some kind of spy novel. Well, this is this had come from the pilots. So oh, he wow. had said this to, to give condolences to the pilots. They were flying over the area where we now find out that it's likely that this aircraft did disappear, where it actually did crash. They just wanted to just discreetly pass the message on to him. Exactly. But how did they know? What, it's all very, very odd when you look at these things. Regardless, let's continue. Like, Just keep these little details together. The other thing that came out is that apparently there was someone working for uh, in the US embassy in China, uh, or like one of the diplomatic posts in China, that was simply doing their job. They were like a social media manager, not probably a little bit more you know, um, of a diverse role than doing that, but part of their yeah. role was social media. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did is that they immediately reported that the airbase that was in Thailand, a US airbase, had picked up the distress, the uh, distress call, right? So with that distress call, they gave the information to John Kerry, Right? What did John Kerry do? He tweeted it out on his personal Twitter account. Oh, weird. Like, why would you tweet that out, <laughs> right? But even more... Well, like I mean, there was a media circus at the time and everyone was screaming for information. Yeah, so maybe he just thought he was helping out. Yep. Yeah. Florence says that information was deleted. She can't find any record of it anywhere anymore. But she said it was confirmed by some of the witnesses that she'd spoken to. So it actually did take place. There is compelling evidence that this what, distress call The tweet did, took place or that the actual distress... She can't say as to the tweet, but she says the distress call itself, it did take place. And she has other confirmation. And she has other confirmation that this distress call was picked up. It was also picked up by, uh, I think it was a Japanese pilot on a flight that was heading past and possibly by the Vietnamese as well. So this is... Well, if this is a cover-up, this is pretty coordinated amongst a bunch of nations. Absolutely it is. And you're absolutely right, Ben. This goes very, very deep. It seems like Australia uh, knows a little bit about it, but we've essentially been left out in the cold. Whereas this is about the US, this is about Malaysia, this is about Vietnam, and this is about China, which is a really important thing. So 
you know, look, obviously I'm going to make it very clear now as we start the story because I don't want to, you know, basically give you your huge amounts of times, dates, you know, locations. All of that is actually included in the book, which I strongly recommend that you pick up. But let's start by saying yeah, that- there's a lot of at zero, 300 hours. Very much. X yeah, happened. Look, still, <laughs> so, yeah, look, still extremely well written. Don't get me wrong. It's it's not that it's boring when you're the, reading it. For, but, that kind of, for these kinds of claims, you need all the details. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But me just giving the overview, I don't need to do that. But let's have a look at some of the major players that are involved here. Why would Australia be involved in this? We only had two citizens that were on board. Why would we spend huge amounts of money? conducting the search and rescue operation. Well, wasn't it because of the narrative that the plane changed direction and it was heading towards our... Sure. To, or but, we were the, just the closest country with the best capability. That's right. But just because we're the closest country, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's our responsibility, right? But it came out that our Prime Minister of the time, Tony Abbott, had made an announcement that Australia was going to do this because it was good you know, international community. It was a goodwill gesture yeah, to the cool. rest of the world, right? Despite the fact that China only gave us 10% of the funding to do this, and but most of the passengers on board were Chinese. But the Chinese government didn't seem to care, which is in some way hardly surprising knowing what they do. But at the time, it seemed to be quite odd. So Australia deployed uh, a number of, of search vessels, one of them which was uh, the ocean vessel that was sent down there. Now, behind it, it was towing something that looks like, it's called a bluefin, but essentially it's this, it looks like a stingray. It looks like a big yellow stingray. You tow it behind the vessel and you have to go quite slowly. It's about 2,000 metres of a depth that you have to get this thing to. And what it's looking for is the pings that are coming off the black box flight recorders. So they were looking for a frequency in the range of, I think it was about 37 kilohertz, right? So as the, the Australian government keeps on getting this information about it disappearing in the southern Indian Ocean, we are doing huge amounts of, of search and rescue down there. And it's not even rescue anymore. Obviously, by the time the aircraft has gone, it's now just a search and recovery operation. People, people wanted answers. Of course they did. Absolutely. And, and rightly so, right? But as we're here, it's the 24th of March. We're in the South Indian Ocean. Australia is doing the search in line with the MRSAT info. And at the time, though, Australia weren't experts in underwater searches. Like, we'd actually made a mistake back in 2009. In 2009, there was a, a medical flight called the Pell Air flight. This was a small, I think, a twin-engine jet that was flying to Norfolk Island, and it put down in a storm in the ocean. And the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, actually, what they had done is they'd stuffed up the investigation. They'd completely stuffed up the investigation. I think they'd falsely blamed the pilot for error or something like that. And this is why Australia was probably involved in the search for MH370. It seems like, and this is just a suggestion, that the ATSB was wanting to become heroes and basically, you know, atoning for the, for the mistake, mistakes. yes, right. with the 2009 crash. So... In 2014, in June of 2014, Martin Dolan, who had uh, basically spent a career, you know, being involved with you know, aviation and the ATSB, he had said that this actual search was the challenge of a career. So I, I get why they were probably wanting to do this, but other experts that have been involved in the recovery of, of other crashes, for example, uh, Air France 447. If you recall Air France 447, uh, that was flying from Rio de Janeiro to Paris. And when that crashed, it went down uh, in the ocean. But we knew exactly where it was within a certain range. Like we only had five minutes of missing information. So, and it still took two years to oh, recover wow. that aircraft, okay. right? And the reason why that uh, plane went down is because the pilot, for whatever reason, was holding back on the joystick and he didn't realize at the time that he'd pulled back. So the nose of the plane was pointed up. They were flying through a storm. The pitot tubes, which give information about the airspeed, had been frozen. So because it was frozen, 
they didn't know how fast yeah, they were sure. flying. And so they pulled back, but doing that, it caused the plane to stall. So obviously we didn't have any of that information with MH370. So was it more of a, a PR exercise? It, it was like looking for a needle in a billion absolutely. haystacks. So this is the thing. When we were looking for Air France, and it took two years, I believe, to recover that information, um, but we had that five-minute window, so we knew exactly where to be looking. With this one, with the Imarsat data, right? So first of all, that arc, it looks like it's really small when you look on a map. It's 80 kilometres wide. Yeah, that's that's a huge amount of area to search. Yeah. It's 4,000 kilometres long. Mm-hmm. There is no way that we would have been able to find this thing. And in fact, experts at the time were saying, this is insane. Why is Australia doing this? This is absolutely looking for a needle in a haystack, and you're not going to find anything. On top of that... The depth that where these um, you know flight recorders are going to be is beyond the transmitting depth of a of one of those devices anyway. This is ridiculous. Regardless, they did pick up a couple of objects and they got these pings, right? But you know, Florence says, was this a mistake or was it deliberate misinformation? And in light of you know what is being described, it seems like it was misinformation. But why spend so much money? So this is some kind of misdirection. A misdirection deliberately. Yep. Done on... It's got everyone looking in the wrong place. Yep. So as they were heading through this area, this is what was quite, you know, amusing about this. And in light of all the things that have been happening politically recently as well, it makes you really question what the hell is going on in the world. So the black box recorders, you know, were only supposed to operate for, I think it was 30 days. That was the battery life on these things. And Australia was, you know, moving very quickly to try and pick up or detect the signals coming from these black box flight recorders uh, within that time. But there were oil slicks that were showing up in other regions that were consistent with where the plane probably had gone down, and yet we ignored it. Whereabouts? This is back up in the Gulf of of Thailand, Mm. and yet it was being ignored. Yet, with Ocean Shield, this particular vessel that had been sent by Australia, they picked up four pings. Bluefin had detected these four pings, but the ping that is emitted by a black box was supposed to be, as I said, in the range of 35 kilohertz. The pings they picked up were somewhere in the range of either 33 kilohertz and the other one was 37 kilohertz. Now, it but might not... was see- there a narrative that it could still be the same black box? Yeah. Why? It, exactly. It doesn't make sense, right? While it doesn't seem like, oh, well, it's a difference of two or three kilohertz. No, it's vitally important that it's at a very specific frequency. It's done on purpose, Right. Yeah, why, why would the frequency change? It, well, someone was saying that it might have been the depth and depth compression would cause the, the frequency to slightly change. Even in extreme scientific testing, the frequency doesn't change by more than one kilohertz. Mm. So this was two or three, or three or four, I'm sorry. So it was significantly higher. So we knew the experts at the time that had been involved in the French recovery of Air France 447 knew that Australia wasn't doing the right thing. It was completely pointless. And yet our prime minister pushed and pushed and pushed and we don't know why. Now, what we find out later on is that in that area, there were, I think it was somewhere in the range of uh, 200 turtles, uh, seven whales, two great white sharks that all had transponders on them. Oh my god! Operating in the range of from all the way from 27 <laughs> kilohertz up to, you know, 36 kilohertz. So right? what you're saying is our reputation in the... Uh downed aircraft recovery business has not improved. Yes. We were what appeared to be at the time possibly chasing sharks or turtles. <laughs> it gets even better, right? And I'm, we're going to take a quick break in a moment, but I'll just leave you with this before we go to a break because I just want to dismiss Australia and get us out of here. Regardless of knowing that it's probably unlikely that it was these uh, black box flight recorders, we continued to doing the search. We picked up these pings. When we got these pings... 
we realised that the first ping was at 300 metres. So it probably was a sea creature. It yeah. wasn't a black box because the black box... It would just the, sink to the bottom, the, right? The depth at that, at that particular location, we're talking 300 metres. The depth here was 4,500 metres. Yeah. So it definitely wasn't that. They also Maybe the black box was sitting on top of a whale. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but guess what was happening, right? The CNN kept on pushing bullshit that Australia had found the black box flight recorders, even though they knew experts. Florence says that she was speaking to experts that were telling CNN, no, this is wrong. CNN, all the way back in 2014, kept on pushing this false narrative, even though they knew it was wrong. So what you're suggesting here seems to be that, yeah, Australia was making mistakes, but they knew it. They knew and it. And they were willingly going along with the misdirection. They were going along and, with it. And someone was directing the media to stick with the same story. Yes, exactly. And on the 15th of April, 2014, the operation was called off due to Bluefin not being able to reach the depth of where it was. Also, there was a small little detail that I'll include, is that one of the pings that they detected later on, they worked out that the ping was actually coming from the detector itself that they were dragging behind their vessel. <laughs> Incompetence in the extreme, <laughs> or is it deliberate misinformation? Oh, so we will continue this as we take a quick break. You're listening to Mysterious Universe. Don't go away. Welcome back. You're listening to Mysterious Universe, and we're discussing the disappearing act, the impossible case of MH370 uh, by Florence DeChangi. And, you know, as I've said, you know, she's written a fantastic book over many years, finding witnesses, looking for data, going through archives, digging up information about the truth behind the disappearance of MH370. And it's becoming very clear that it already there is some type of disinformation campaign that is taking place, trying to even dissuade rescue or searches from looking in the location where it's most likely that the MH370 aircraft went down. But as I said earlier on, why? Let's have a look at why someone would do this. What's so important about this? And some people have suggested that, look, maybe the reason why this took place is that it was something to do with, you know, finance. You know, it's, it's not just finance that plays a role here. There's also political reasons. Um, you know, there's public safety issues. There's what a would whole... be the finance uh, okay. angle? So one of the finance angles was really fascinating. And this was uh, a, a story that came to, to Florence when she flew to meet a contact. And this one contact was actually so convinced that he knew what had happened to MH370 that uh, his wife had threatened to leave him because the guy had literally talked about being disheveled. He had literally turned his house inside out into a massive whiteboard <laughs> or pinboard where everything pins, was yeah. pinned up and right. everything was linked together with red string and he was you know, smoking constantly and being completely consumed by this. Yeah, like you this afternoon. Kind of. His belief was that the reason why MH370 had been covered up was purely for financial reasons because the aircraft had been struck by lightning. Now, when you hear that, you just go, oh, well, so what if the aircraft struck by yeah, lightning? They have the, a Faraday cage effect. 
No, he was saying that the aircraft two years prior to this event, a little bit more than two years prior to this event, had been involved in an incident, a small accident uh, at an airport where it had part of its wing affected or sheared off. And in doing so, they'd repaired the aircraft. But in repairing the aircraft, it had then removed the Faraday effect of this aircraft. Oh, right. Right? So the aircraft, this uh, MH370, this 777 Boeing aircraft, it was hit by lightning as it crossed from Malaysian airspace into Vietnamese airspace. You know, this weird kind of perfect coincidence of taking place. When that happened, when it was struck by lightning, that would explain all the things that happened. It would have either killed the captain or incapacitated the captain or fried the brains of the computer. And that would give us indications as to why it flew to an extreme altitude, why it flew back down to a low altitude, because the pilot was trying to maintain that. And the hydraulics would be messed up. So what's the finance angle? Is it to save the shares of Boeing? Right. But it's not Boeing's fault. No, Wouldn't well, it be the maintenance crew's fault? No. Well, the conspiracy is, is that Boeing knows that the Faraday cage effective aircraft is uh, destroyed when an aircraft is repaired. So, oh, you, so it, it, that would kill the share price. Okay. Every single Boeing aircraft that had been prepared yeah. would have been pulled out of the sky. Massive repairs. Every yeah. single, and it might not have just been Boeing. It would have been Airbus. It would have been every manufacturer that had performed repairs on their aircraft if this was what the physics was. But that doesn't really make sense. Florence doesn't go into it in too much detail, um, but it doesn't make sense that the Faraday cage effect of an aircraft would be diminished simply through repairing or making yeah. a small repair. So it's a bit crazy, but I'm pleased that she actually followed that through to add that to trying to understand what's going on here. You can see just the great depth of detail that she went into trying to understand. It might actually have more to do from a political standpoint with what was on board the aircraft. And there have been some conspiracy theories, and we've spoken about them, Ben. One of them, of course, was that... Was it a body of one of the giants? Well, maybe. I think it was the mummy that was on the Titanic. <laughs> so that one was also in the hole. But... Was it Tutan Ra's... Tomb? No, no, nothing like that was included. There were 20, however, employees of Freescale Semiconductor, which is now a company oh. known as NXP. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, <laughs> Freescale. It. it was all about the passengers. That's right. So Freescale with these 20 employees, what it was, I think there was something like 12 of them were Chinese and eight of them were Malay. It was some type of exchange program that had taken place where... Uh, the Chinese consortium had come to Malaysia to examine some of their production facilities to improve efficiency. And then the Malay employees were flying back with the Chinese to go up and you know improve the efficiency of one of the facilities up there. And the theory goes is that the technology that they were using, they're a huge multinational and they're a leading manufacturer of none other than defense microcontroller technology. So it's like taking out a bunch of the top weapons scientists. Not just weapons, the, for the China. elite electronic warfare right. experts. Like, this is what these guys were. They would have been leading They're electronic They're all on the warfare. same flight. They're all on the same flight. So you bring this flight down, uh, it causes massive problems for China. But that also doesn't necessarily make sense, right? When you actually So this is suggesting it, that the US shot it down. Well, maybe. Or used a proxy. Maybe, yeah. It is suggesting that the US did play a part in it. But this conspiracy theory, while not completely debunked, it does suggest that this is not what's taking place. So one of the theories that came out is that of those 20 employees, four of them were owners of a patent of a significant technological leap forward. Significant, like something really? like changing uh, what we know about computers right. and, and, and warfare, obviously, electronic warfare. And what had happened was that if they knocked out those, those four patent holders then the patent would have automatically been assigned to Freescale Semiconductor. So Freescale Semiconductor would have owned it, right? 
So there is the financial motivation to do that. The thing is, though, and this is what most people know, this is just some stupid internet theory because anyone that works for a major multinational corporation that is doing research and development, if you develop anything, you don't own it. Freescale owns it. The company you're working for owns it. This is what happens. So they didn't have the patent at all. There may very well have been one, but Freescale already owned it. So this conspiracy theory that Freescale somehow electronically took over the plane and crashed it into the ocean on purpose is wrong. It's completely wrong. The next thing is, though... It seems like, yeah, that the corporate espionage would be a, a more likely way to steal your enemy's exactly. secrets rather you, than you killing the personnel. It, exactly. You wouldn't commit, you yeah. know, a mass murder for that purpose. So something else has to be occurring. It's probably to do with the 10 tons of uh, mangosteens that were in the cargo hold. Okay, well, hang on. What, what the hell is a mangosteen? Okay, so a mangosteen... Is it as delicious as a mango, a normal mango? I don't know. I've never had one. I've seen them actually when I was in Penang. Mangosteen. But they are... It's one of those weird Southeast Asian fruits exactly. that smells like a, an old poo, <laughs> but tastes really delicious. I don't know. But what we do know is that definitely the mangosteens were rotten because 10 oh. tons of these things, right? Maybe that's just how they smell. No, um, it was out of season. Oh. In March, they were definitely out of season. Why was there out of season rotting mangoes? Not only that, in the hold right? of this plane, anything you fly into China like that, you have to have export permits for. There were no mm. export permits for this. Um, oh, they look gross. Yeah, they, there was something you know strange that was occurring with this, and no one the understood only why. I, the only photo I can find of someone eating them, that person is a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. Do humans actually eat these? I don't know. I've, I have no idea. But um, what we found out later on, and this is probably what was taking place, is that the mangosteens were probably acting as uh, basically an outer camouflage for uh, ivory smuggling. Oh, yeah, right, smuggling. So, or pangolin scales. Yeah. So, in one of those recent stings in Australia, they, they were intercepted. It was a bunch of... Um, cocaine in, inside pineapples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they were probably smuggling something in. And because if you look at the manifest of other flights that were going between uh, Beijing and, and Kuala Lumpur at the time, you find that there were tons of mangosteens on all the flights. Right. So it probably, it wasn't that they were smuggling something, or were they? Were they not smuggling drugs or ivory or anything else, but could they have been hiding something more technologically advanced? So that We'll just was there all microchips hidden inside well, the mangosteens? You know what's odd about this is that there was actually 2.5 tons of Motorola electronics on board, uh, right? Yes. Now, that with that these sounds like a more likely target. There was also 2,000 highly advanced microchips that were only reported in the inventory being worth roughly a few dollars, but they may have been something about those chips. They may have been whoever was trying to take MH370, they were trying to take those chips. So, I mean, that's a decent theory, right? And it so the chips, f- the Motorola chips don't think cell phones, don't think computers, think chips for missile systems exactly. and defense systems. Right? Exactly, yeah. Drones and, and yeah. electronic warfare, right? No. It no? Could, no. I'm not even close. Well, you are close. But it's it, the it mangosteens. It's the mangosteens. <laughs> because potentially... And while, Wait, are you serious? While, it's actually the mangosteens. While Florence doesn't say this directly, if you read between the lines, right... We have to go to Captain Phillips. Does Xi Jinping really like mango sticks? <laughs> yeah, like, no, you know the uh, the film Captain Phillips with you know Tom Hanks. Yeah, and how the look smart, at me, look I'm at the me. captain yeah, now. Exactly yeah. right. So that was actually obviously based on a real story. That was when a vessel docked in Seychelles. Uh, I think it was the Maersk, Alabama, which was the vessel that was there. There's some rumor that on board that that uh, ship was uh, highly classified drones with stealth technology, right? Highly classified drones. 
And the reason why... What, they used pi- uh, pirates to try and get them? They used pirates to get hold of that vessel, right? Then... Who, who's they did? We don't know. Possibly China. Most right? likely China. Most likely China, right? And we know that China does do things like that. They do, do use mercenaries to... Yeah, I was reading just uh, a couple of days ago that during the, the, uh, the, war, the bombing of the Taliban... The, the CCP, they sent agents into Afghanistan and they were basically paying $10 million cash to any Afghanis who could give them an unexploded American missile. That's so great that you said that because that's, yep, yeah, that really does highlight exactly what's probably going on here is that the Chinese used mercenaries because they knew that there were these stealth drones which were aboard. So what was happening is obviously the war, war on terror was winding down and the US was moving these stealth drones. And we know that there were stealth drones because it was the stealth helicopter which was used in the, uh, the assassination of Osama bin Laden. So that technology. I still don't, I'm still not seeing the connection to the mangosteens. Okay, so, well, <laughs> they hid the drone in the mangosteens. Well, the mangosteens are tiny, though. Yeah, but when you've got 10 tons of them, think about it. You get a massive, huge pallets of Do them. Do they break up the drone into yeah, little parts yeah. and put each little bit inside a mangosteen? Well, no, you probably put it inside the mangosteen, but you obviously dismantle the drone, you put it into pallets, you fill the pallets with 10 tons of rotting fruit. You're going <laughs> to ignore it. You're going to have a pretty stinky drone. Well, guess what? It wasn't even uh, X-rayed. So what we know in Kuala oh. Lumpur is that it absolutely was not X-rayed. Right, they're just used to seeing so many rotten mangosteens. Well, exactly. So they, they don't just, even bother. Yeah, they just treat it as like, oh well, just more mangosteens. You know, who cares? And obviously, because of corruption and with the smuggling of ivory and other contraband, they probably just went, oh yeah. Okay, so this is fascinating. So there's obviously a intriguing chain of custody that led to this there class is. of prototype classified drone. Yeah. Finding its well, way to first of all to Malaysia. And then getting on that plane. Well, look, it may not even be a prototype. It might just be a standard drone, which is utilized by the US, but we don't know about it. Something right? that's captured. It's just, or... Yeah, exactly. Like, we don't know exactly, but obviously it's a very advanced piece of technology of either surveillance or stealth technology that the CCP, that China wants, right? So they somehow managed to get it off um, this vessel. Is there any other evidence that we know it's a drone? Like, did you? No. No, this so is she, just her speculation. This is her with doing who she's spoken to and the information that she's pulled through okay, from so there military are authorities. That- there are details that have come through, yeah, from people that have said, look, this is probably what was occurring. This is what she has been able to draw from her contact with witnesses, right? So she says that, because um, Diego Garcia comes up, right? But essentially, one of the safest places to start doing this would have been Malaysia. Because China's got, you know, close relations yeah, with Malaysia. So if you can get it from the ship, from the cargo ship, you get it into Malaysia, that's your first point of safety before you just easily ship it in mangosteens over into China. But you can see why you would want to stop, obviously, getting into China's hands. And the US knew that it had been taken by China. So now they have to do something. And how do they do this? Now, obviously, unlike China... I think China would have just happily shot the the aircraft down if they were doing something like this. I have belief in America that they wouldn't actually kill civilians. I don't think they would do that. So they had to execute a plan that would allow them to recover this experimental or this you know secretive surveillance technology in this drone. So how would they do that? Well, one of the speculations is that the aircraft was actually landed at Diego Garcia, right? And there is information that's out there. Where's that? that? So Diego Garcia is uh, not too far from the South China Sea. It's a top secret military base. It's actually a location that's used by the CIA. It's used by major surveillance networks, including the NSA throughout the world. Uh, It was a space tracking station as well. And Mm. what's really amazing about Diego Garcia is that Diego Garcia has a tracking station built on board with over-the-horizon radar. This is what's so incredible about this. It has these things known as geodish telescopes. 
these geodist uh, telescopes are just so precise in their abilities that they can see a basketball 37 kilometers, sorry, 37,000 kilometers in space. So an well, object. I thought 37 kilometers was impressive. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, 37,000 kilometers above the Earth's surface. And yet, for whatever reason, they didn't have any information at all about this aircraft. What do you mean? No nothing. images? No images, no radar data, nothing about this aircraft, which is odd. It's almost like it had been erased or they weren't looking in that direction that evening, but they would have been. It just, it didn't make sense, right? Then Australia comes back in, right? And I didn't know this. Apparently, Australia has an extremely, extremely sophisticated surveillance system beyond what you would ever possibly imagine that Australia would have. It's right? called the Dingo 5000. <laughs> no, it's, maybe it is. But you obviously, spot a dingo at 37,000 kilometres. <laughs> floating above the earth. <laughs> no, it's come, what it appears to be, obviously because we have such a great relationship with the US, it's come from technology uh, with the US and it's been placed there so that we can monitor the Pacific range, right? So what this technology does, it's over the horizon radar. It can pick up anything. It can find little spots in the ocean and know precisely what it is with how the the resolution Mm -hmm. on this system is, right? And what it does, it monitors all of Indonesia, it monitors all of Papua New Guinea, it goes all the way around and and monitors the South China Sea, and it looks out all over the Indian Ocean, all over it, right? Really? All over the horizon. It can see for thousands of kilometers. Turns out the data, which when Imarsat came out and said, oh, well, it must have flown down this path, Australia turned around and said, oh... Yeah, well, uh, we weren't pointing the radar in that direction that evening. <laughs> it's like, okay. Sorry, mate. It was, right. it was Miss Sheila's birthday. I was at home. <laughs> we didn't have it on. Maybe I, they, were, they, were, they were pointing it at the, the emus or something. Garbage. I do not believe that. I do not believe that Australia, who was spying for our allies, that we wouldn't have had Obviously, the system operational yeah. point in that I mean, direction. That's the point of it. Right? That's the absolute point. <laughs> For it to have point. failed like that, I mean, you may as well not have the system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, look, there was a steady campaign that went against the captain, uh, which is written by Florence. She says that there were numerous you know, people that had said that uh, essentially this captain was the one. This is the official narrative, that the captain is the person who's responsible for this. But as I said, it seems like that doesn't make sense, especially you know when Florence spoke to people that knew him this guy was an upstanding, fine man. Why would he do this? Why would he suddenly snap and do this? It doesn't make any sense. So this is where we bring in the MHs, right? The so MHs? And I love this, right? I think this is really cool. We're living in a world now where, and this is what starts to, and I'm going to skip forward a little bit on, on what the story is, right? But we live in a world now where essentially everything is digital, Right? Everything is we digital. Live in a it's, world. Well, look, it's not. Everything is digital. It's not. It's no longer putting down in hard copies, right? We don't have paper form. We don't have logs, all this kind of stuff. But what we start finding out is that when Florence started looking at records relating to this, yeah. any details that came up of you know, radar information, uh, cell phone tower information, because there was a story that came out that apparently as the aircraft had flown towards Penang, that uh, the co pilots. Uh, cell phone pinged a tower in Penang. So it proved that this aircraft had flown over Malaysia and backing up the story. But it doesn't make sense because there were all the other passengers on the aircraft. How come only one one mobile phone, you know, or one cell phone pinged the tower? There would have been plenty of them. They conducted experiments later on by private investigators or private groups that had gone to do this. They couldn't get it to ping down on the ground. 
but the story, obviously, this one thing kind of kept this narrative going and people sucked it up. There are a whole heap of people online that started going, this doesn't make any sense. So they all got involved. They became known as the MHs. These are people that were considered conspiracy theorists, crackpots. But no, they were just regular people like you and me that wanted to know what really happened with MH370. Some of the other people became known as nodders. And the reason why they were called nodders, these were a group of people that were looking at satellite imagery, including Courtney Love, of all people. I remember when this happened, right? Courtney Love tweeted out some image that she'd gotten. There's a company known as Tom Nod. It's this web platform that's used for analyzing satellite images. And so this web platform with these satellite images went from having, I think it was like 1,000 or 2,000, something like that, hits a month Mm. to 100,000 hits a minute. Where do they get their imagery from? I don't know where it comes. It comes from satellites, though. I think it comes from up to a consortium of, of 19 okay. satellites or something like that. So, But they're constantly going it's around. It's like public, public It's a public thing. It's kind of like GPS, right, where anyone can access it. And so what was happening is Tom Nod got this following of these hundreds of thousands of people per minute that were getting online that weren't trained, obviously, in any type of analysis mm. of satellite imagery or GIS, but they were looking at it going, oh, this area right here, there's an oil slick. This area right here, we're finding that what appears to be wreckage. Yep. And, you know, I don't necessarily think you have to have a trained eye to be like, that looks like the wing of a plane or that looks like the tail of a plane sure. or, you know, you know what Malaysian Airlines logo looks like. And there were these things that were coming through. There were people that were finding debris off the coast of Vietnam. Um, in fact, there was one man, and this is where it becomes a little bit strange, right? So first of all, when I was saying we live in this digital world, when Florence looked at data, she found that it had been erased, or it, hadn't, it was like it hadn't been there. There was these massive gaps in information that was coming through. One really great example was of the US 7th Fleet. So the US 7th Fleet was based in the area of the Gulf of Thailand and all through this region. And there were... Uh, this is the Navy. This is the Navy. This is US Navy, which is deployed through this entire region. There's nuclear submarines, there's yep. destroyers, there's uh, missile ships, there's just everything. I don't know exactly the details of what they missile are. Missile ships. Destroyers are missile ships. You know, whatever. You know, there's a whole range. I believe of, they're called boats. There's Aaron. a whole range of military vessels and ships <laughs> that are in this region. Also, with ones that can deploy Orion aircraft and helicopters and this kind of thing. Right? It's a huge amount. Now, what the Seventh Fleet does is that they publish their information on their website about basically where their ships are. Like it's just something that they do, and like, oh yeah, the U.S. is policing the world and protecting the world, and this is the information they give out. Not a bad thing. You know, it's fine. But Florence says when she went to go and look at the data, she said prior to this event taking place, she said um, they would give out like 106 reports a month of their position locations. She said when she went to look at the data, she said in the month before the disappearance of MH370 and the month after, there was not a single report. Every single report had been removed, had been erased. It's a bit of an anomaly. And because we live in this digital world, this is what can happen is it can just simply be erased with the press of a button. So it's Someone, not the data that's suspicious, it's the absence of it's it. It's the absence of the data. And they and she requested details. She wanted to know why did this happen. The information didn't come through. She was just completely ignored. So then we go to this German guy by the name of Swoodler. And uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly. I probably, probably destroyed that. But uh, Swoodler, this, uh, German, he's a former German Navy vet. And he was one of these nodders. He was looking at these satellite images. And as he was looking at these satellite images, he was convinced that he had seen debris off the coast of Vietnam. And so, unlike most armchair researchers, see, what you could do with this Tom Nod platform is that when you see debris, you essentially highlight it or click on it and tag it, and then that information gets sent back to Tom Nod, right? right? And then Tom Nod claimed that they were taking this information and they were giving it to 
you know, people in the area and search teams to be able to find the debris. So it seems like it's a great thing that a whole heap of people kind of get together and it's do crowdsourcing that. finding a plane. Yeah, exactly. Or it's also crowdsourcing a cover up, right? Because what came from Todd Nod, which was very clear, is that after some people had tagged or flagged this information, right? Like finding a, a wing or yeah, debris a wing, somewhere. Debris. There were people that said that they had seen an actual tail, a wow. tail fin, uh, with the colours of the Malaysian Airlines on it. Wow. When they went back to the images, they were erased. What? They were gone. What it appears, what these people were crowdsourcing, is that they were actually crowdsourced. Tom Nod was using them to find all the satellite images that had debris in them so that they could erase them, so that they could delete them. This seems too obvious that this oh, would it's, just it's suddenly blatantly, be gone. It's blatantly obvious. And you know what they did? They replaced it. They replaced it with other images that ended up redirecting these people to, where do you think? The South Indian Ocean. So where the search was, where the search was, and so even, Australia was tracking whales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and turtles, <laughs> and their own uh, research craft. And so, like, why? And what was amazing though is this is what you've got to be really careful. This is a world where we live in four chan, right? Where people can find, you know, a flag. Yeah, the Autos Army. They're, they're They'll incredible. track that plane down in minutes. They're absolutely incredible. So what some people were doing—that's what I thought the Nodders were. Well, they kind of are, right? They were actually finding. There was one particular woman who had done things like. She had not only taken the satellite images, she'd also gone and gotten a whole heap of weather data. And she had somehow overlaid the weather data to show cloud formations. And she was able to match the cloud formations to the locations of this wa- where wow. this was. <laughs> and she found that even though it was saying that this debris was in the South Indian Ocean, the cloud formations and data confirmed that it was in the, in the South China Sea. Oh, that's a- bizarre. In the Gulf of um, Thailand near Vietnam. Cheeky right? cover-up. Really, really clever. So we go back to the German guy, right? So this German guy didn't want to just simply tag the data. Nine! Nine, nine, nine! He was like, I'm going to go there. He actually spends his what? own money <laughs> because he was a diver, right? He spends his own money, and it's not that de- that deep there. So he spends his own money, and he goes to Vietnam. But right before he goes... But he single-handedly went he to went find there and MH370. Hired a team to go and have a look for MH370, right? What Where a he was the, Oh, he's a real badass, right? So he goes, but just before he goes... He suddenly gets this information from, from Tom Nod going that, um, no, we've got it wrong. It's in the wrong area, right? That's actually, that's not the South you know, China Sea. That's not Vietnam. Yeah. That's oh, actually, no, yeah. you definitely don't want to look there, uh, experienced German Navy guy. It's, it's over here yeah, you should yeah. look. So they actually told him that it was an abnormality in their system and that the debris had actually moved to the Indian Ocean. Did so, he smell bullshit? Well, I think he did. I mean, according to Florence, he was kind of like, well, look, I was already heading there, so... I wasn't going to stop. Like I was going to so go. He just so he went does. to where he originally thought he should look. He said that when he got there, right? He said he found a spotless ocean floor. What right? does that mean? That's not normal. Like I mean, I've you know, like I, it had been dredged and cleaned. Exactly. Like I've dived in some of the most pristine locations in the world. You still find stuff, right? I was in Oman, which has got some of the most pristine places, mm. but you still have crap on the floor, right? Like three dead bodies. Even. <laughs> not quite. There was nothing. There was not, and so what he says, right? This is what's more unsettling. I found a tire in my dam the other day. Does that count? That counts exactly, right? <laughs> it had it been covered up. So he says that uh, while he was there, there were these two fishing trawlers. They were dredging the seafloor. They were cleaning up the debris. And while he was this, there, he while, saw them in action. While he was there, and he said this wasn't normal for a fishing boat. This wasn't a fishing boat. And he said on top of that, they trailed them for a couple of days. Were they Chinese fishing boats? We don't know. We don't know what, what they were. Because the, the, the Chinese kind of use their fishing boats as like a little fleet. Yeah, of course they do. An unofficial fleet. Yeah, of course That's they what do. they do when they, they get one of the islands. Like the islands that are in dispute, they're like, we're fishing here. Yeah. 
And there's just, there was reading a story in a couple of weeks ago where there was just dozens of Chinese fishing ships just parked on this island. It's like, oh no, we're still fishing. That's and right. And they're all like they're lined tied up together, perfectly. lined up together. Yeah. Oh no, we're just, just fishing here. Look, it was, it was so stupid. Now this poor German guy, apparently, um, you know, he did have enough information and details to, to prove that there was debris there and that this had all been covered up, right? That, that Tom Nod had done something. And IBT, I think it's the International Business Times or something. Yeah. They basically plastered him as being this crackpot nut job. And he sued them. He sued them because he was like, this is insane, right? And um, as he sued them, he won. He this actually, guy's awesome. Yeah, he won. And he was defended. You know, and fortunately, and he won. And you know, it was all over social media about how nuts he was. It was almost like there had been some control opposition that had taken place to dismiss his findings. But you know, when I was reading this part, I was like, okay, that's pretty compelling. You know, we've got this information that appears that, you know, something did happen in Vietnam, but, you know, what else is there? Much later in the book, Florence references a friend of hers just through, I don't know if it was through this, you know, uh, lucky circumstance. And it seems like whenever we look at these sorts of things that these synchronicities take place, it's almost like the truth is trying to find its way through. Yeah. Uh, this little detail comes up later on that essentially validates what this German guy had found. But before we do that, let's just jump back to a couple of nodders that I want to mention to you because these people have been deliberately harassed and really? have been, yep, absolutely. And they've been shut down by what appear to be government agents. So we go to Carlotta Patty. So Carlotta Patty, she read the French version of a book that Florence had published back in March of 2016. It was kind of like her initial you know, uh, research into MH370 where she had informed her opinion. A shorter version of what's a Much shorter, now. yeah, exactly. So uh, Carlotta Patty had been obsessed with this. And in fact, I think Carlotta was one of the people that was using um, images, like the uh, meteorological images to get more details about this. But she, what she'd done is that she had found these highly reflective metallic pieces that were in the sea. You know, somewhere in the South China Sea, right? I don't know the exact details, but she said that she found this uh, consistent with being somewhere in the range of the 8th to the 15th of March, 2014. You know, the day and the following days after the disappearance of MH370. Now, she um, got hold, she tried to get hold of this image, right? Within this this date range. When she, So she wanted, that first, when you get the information, it's only very low res, you know, photographs. And she knew that it was this date range. So she contacts this company, that provides the uh, higher resolution images. I think it's called uh, the Digital Globe Catalog. When she contacts them and asks them for the date, they say, oh, we've got photos all before and after, but we didn't take any images on that date. <laughs> it's like the Australian radar system. Yeah. Oh, we had it switched off that yeah. day. <laughs> it's, it's right? So she's like, oh, so she manages to get a, uh, an image, a high res image from the 16th of March. And she says that image showed thousands of highly reflective pieces of wow. debris in the sea, right? She even found the plain tail with the logo on it, right? So as soon as she saw this, she wanted to get the full color image, right? So she goes back into the Worldview catalog, which is like one of these groups mm. that, that holds this information. She goes to them and requests the full color image. They say, oh, uh, yeah, that's not available for purchase. They wouldn't give it to her, even though it clearly showed that, yep, there was something there, was something there and it would have been a high-res image. This has got to be the NSA Pulling strings, right? Maybe. I mean, who else would have this kind of pull? Maybe. The other one is Cindy Hendry. Because these are private companies, right? They're private companies. But they're yep. military contracted. They're linked, obviously, anything that satellite is linked in with military groups. So uh, Cindy Hendry. So she uh, was one of these nodders. She was going through the databases. She actually found the hull, like a piece of hull with the S part of the Malaysian Airlines on it. She flagged it and sent it to Tom Nord. 
uh, and then they came back to her and went, oh, no, uh, this is the wrong image, and removed it, right? So she's one of these peoples now that actually had this event take place where it was actually moved. She also says that the coordinates were deleted from the system. So the actual coordinates relating to this, even though the image was deleted, so were the coordinates. And then it was officially stated that it actually had moved to the Indian Ocean. So come on, just like so much of this taking place. So I think, um, yeah, what happened here, right? So I'm just looking at my notes here trying to recall what happened to Cindy. This was even more unsettling. So Cindy, even though she, she manages to, I don't know if she took screenshots or if she actually downloaded the imagery, but she got a lot. She got a lot of stuff that definitely showed some type of debris. And yes, it is open to interpretation, but according to some of this, I haven't seen the images. According to some people, even with an untrained eye, if you look at these images, it's abundantly clear that this is potentially aircraft debris. It, it could be other things, but it's probably aircraft debris. So she sets up this Facebook page, right? And this Facebook page has all these photographs on it and all the details on it. Facebook page, there's your first mistake. What are we? This is fascinating, right? So we're talking about <laughs> CNN giving out false information. Now she puts it on Facebook, right? When she puts it on Facebook, she says she logs back in. Everything's been deleted. Zuckerberg threw a spear at her. She's dead. Everything is being deleted and it's been marked. Her page was marked as spam. So she contacted Facebook saying, what the hell? What's going on here? Yeah, contacted Facebook. Good luck. Wouldn't even respond. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Color me surprised. You've got a so you've got CNN, a propaganda outlet, not a news station because we know it's propaganda because they are giving out false information in you know in spite of the fact that they have been told by experts in the field that it couldn't possibly be the information that they have. They ignored that and deliberately kept on going with this false narrative. Facebook is now deleting the information. Can you see a theme? That is occurring here. No, I think Facebook and CNN are very trustworthy. We are being told the wrong information by these groups, by these big tech oligarchs, right? So the next thing that happens after all this, you could be like, well, you know, maybe this is what's happening. Maybe Cindy was wrong. You know, maybe she's just some crackpot who, you know, obviously she doesn't have any training about this. She doesn't know what she's looking at. She's just a, a crazy. She says that after the information was taken down, she said that she found that there were men in black, as in not the, the Keelian kind, the yeah. government kind, yeah. that were going through her garbage. Huh. So this is right after the Facebook stuff happened. Then, right, this is where I'm talking about everything being digital, right, and the deletion of information online. There were websites like Flight Radar 24, uh, Plane Finder, you know, all these sorts of websites that hold tracking information of aircraft. And when uh, Florence went to look at the data from around these dates, all the information had been deleted or changed. Across all Across these services. All That's why I'm saying it's it's got to be... It's it, massive. Obviously, it's a... It is, state agency that has massive pull. It is. She said there were strange changes, including also the like the the call sign of the aircraft being changed. You know, some of them showing that MH370 was flying for months after its disappearance. Um, you know, there's so many odd things that were taking place that she said this is where it became really apparent to her that we live in this digital world now, where she doesn't say this, but like 1984, the narrative can just be simply changed easily by the press of a button. I mean, this is really scary kind of stuff. And this became really apparent to her that this is the world we're living in. So what she did, she obviously got close at some point, right? She obviously, because she started calling out and and reporting that this information was being deleted. So she also saw that there were these ultra fast flights that were heading towards MH370 that particular night that was on these flight tracking. So this is what happens. They make mistakes. They forget about you know, certain, they try to erase some things, mm. but it actually has, it, it creates this effect of where it makes it more conspicuous by removing something. And she saw that there were these ultra fast moving flights that were in this region. The NTSB contacted her 
and told her that, oh, you actually need to contact General Microfilms. They're our archivists. They actually, you know, they have microfilms of all this data. So you'll see that there's, you know, nothing going on here. So she does. But they give her an address and it's this phone number. When they give her the address, it turns out that the address is just some small home in, in rural Virginia. She's like, that's okay. That's kind of odd. But she, she doesn't think too much of it, right? She, even though it's strange. But she she wasn't going to go out there. She might have at some point. But she also got a phone number. So she thinks, I'll call them first. She calls them. And this man answers the phone, right? And this man goes, oh, yeah, um, MH370. Oh, yeah, the file's really small. It's actually very thin. And uh, the case is closed now. That was it. Have a nice day. <laughs> That's, yeah. Now, Nodders, after finding out this information, they actually tried to perform FOIAs, you know, Freedom of Information Requests on the NSA, the CIA, and other similar agencies. All of them, under the national security guys, rejected the FOIA requests. All of it was gone. There's a picture that's being painted here. It's strange. I mean, let's be honest. It's really strange. And now we have to skip forward to a man by the name of Tim Ackers. So Tim Ackers is this British treasure hunter. You know, he's uh, very well versed in doing this kind of research. And he was actually looking at these satellite images. And he had this specialized software that he had developed over many years. He's refined it over many years because what do you do? He had found Chinese junks that were long gone. He had found uh, abandoned vessels. He was very good at using the software to find obviously things which would fund his company and keep his, his company going. So he used uh, software connected with something called Landsat 5 and these images came through. He claims in these images that not only did he get photographs, satellite images, of two ships recovering debris off the coast of Vietnam, but also that there were bloat, severely bo- bloated bodies which had washed ashore What? in this location. And that makes sense, right? Because obviously bodies would end up in the sea. What happened to the bodies? These bodies, when they're exposed to water, blow up. That's exactly what happens. Now, some of the theories are that the local villages, because they're not connected, they're poor. Some of them are quite poor. They're not connected to all the information that's coming through from the modern world. When they find a body that just washes up on the shore, what do you think they do with it? They just bury it. So it disappears. Like this thing just disappears. So he um, then... He tried, I think, to pass this information on to the authorities, and it was completely dismissed. In fact, it was recorded as being false at some point. So this poor guy was just dismissed, but Florence says there's something more to it. Now, sadly, he died from pancreatic cancer in early 2020, so she wasn't able to pull more details out. But there was enough that it was clear that this was a well-educated, incredible man that had compelling information, again, from this same area. All the dots are starting to be connected. You can start to see what the official narrative is and how it's wrong and what the unofficial narrative is. And this is coming from people that have nothing to gain by making these claims and presenting this information and people that are very scared about presenting this information. So the actual location where it went down is off the coast of Thailand. Off the coast of Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah, off the coast of Vietnam. So look, let me just skip forward a little bit and just give you a couple of details. First of all, obviously this is anecdotal. This is hearsay. So it it doesn't uh, give us real truth about what happened, but maybe it will. There was a little couple of details that came forward through Florence's research, and this is people that are connected with Imarsat, right? So as I said, remember how Imarsat, you know, on their about page, it's like to serve the US military or the US government. That's kind of their saying. These details came out that a former employee contacted Florence and said that 
This is ridiculous. Imarsat saying that, oh, we only got one or two pings or a few pings and it's just taken us days to perform this research to find out where it might be is absolute garbage. Yeah, it does seem. Imarsat <laughs> is highly advanced technology. Especially if they're a military contractor, there's like a three-day delay. If there is any Imarsat technology on any aircraft in the world, they can pinpoint exactly where it is instantaneously. Or at the very least within a few minutes, in extreme examples in a few hours, but not days. Now, this little detail came forward that was forwarded onto Florence. And the detail was, is that apparently there was a dinner party that was being conducted by uh, one of the, the heads of Imarsat or someone who was very, very high up in Imarsat. And apparently one of the kids, and I don't know how old the kid was, but the kid had said something to one of the guests along the lines of, look, Imarsat knows exactly where this, this plane is. They know exactly where it is. My dad told me. Ooh. Right? So one of these guests, grounded. one of these guests at the party, goes up to this guy and says, uh, "Just out of interest, because he happened to be a journalist uh, who was a colleague of Florence." <laughs> oh my god, double goes, grounded! Look, just out of interest, uh, your son just mentioned that you know where MH370 is. Can you tell me? And apparently, the guy flipped out. Apparently, he became just strange. He became aggressive. He became withdrawn. He was clearly like stricken in the face. Mm. And you know, Florence makes this point of like, well, you wouldn't go. You, you wouldn't behave in that fashion. You'd just be, oh, no, my son got it wrong. Or, you know, he misinterpreted me. That's kind of a normal reaction. You don't look panic-stricken is the word that was used to describe how he was behaving. Now, guess what? Imarsat did a couple of things that were very suspicious. Guess who actually tried to uncover the truth behind MH370? The French! The French were trying to... They actually got a judiciary together. Well, sounds like she's trying to get the truth. Well, absolutely. She's French. She's French. Yeah, look, I mean... If she's not careful, she's going to end up with a baguette in the head. You know, it's yeah. like, it's it's not... One of those unfortunate double baguette in the yeah. head incidents. No, yeah, she would fight Shot herself. herself in the head with a baguette. Yeah, it would be found, you know, tied up in a picnic basket with an accordion shoved in her. You know, mm. This is what's going to happen if she keeps going with this. But I think it's great that she's putting this information out. I think it also might be this safety in, in publication as well. It's like once you become so public with this knowledge that if you actually get killed off, it becomes extremely suspicious. Imarsat refused to talk to any media outlets except for two. It spoke to the BBC briefly, and guess who else it spoke to? CNN. Communist right? News Network. <laughs> CNN. Exactly. Even with the French judiciary, though, that seemed to have authority, they refused any request for any information and any data to be given to the French judiciary. They just refused. Imarsat refused to give anything over. Why? Why? Because, because if you look at this information, what would it reveal? Now, Look, this is all just sounding like it's a cover-up from the American military. The scenario yeah. is starting to build that there was some technology they didn't want to get in the hands of the Chinese military. Yep. They Perhaps they tried to hijack the plane and landed on that, that secret base you were talking about. Yep. It obviously didn't work. It went awry and they screwed up. The plane went down. Mm -hmm. Maybe they shot it down. And they've they've obviously tried to cover this up. I yeah. mean, this is what the, it's pointing to. This is a cover-up that includes the allies of the United States. It appears that the allies of the United States are absolutely involved, but at the behest of the elites. Very powerful political people, uh, such as Bush, uh, Obama, you know, people that you would think that wouldn't be associating with each other. But, well, this was uh, during the Obama administration. Right? That's exactly right. So if there yep. was some kind of uh, cover-up, some and military op... You know, it didn't go well, well <laughs> and obviously they'd want to cover it up. Remember how I said, though, at the start that this appears to be something like we don't know the world we're living in. You know, we have this impression of, you know, who's left, who's right, who's the enemy, who's not. It's all messed up because it appears that the Americans may even be working with the Chinese in some capacity. What? Yeah, it's, it's very, and because it's the elites, it's obviously not the American people. 
It's these political elites that don't care oh, about well, selling mean, out and killing anyone. You're just describing Wall Street. And it's exactly what is going on at the moment. Yeah, exactly. with plenty of that people are, on the take from the CCP. That's how they conduct warfare. That are connected in with big tech oligarchs like Facebook, with news propaganda, propaganda outlets like CNN. Uh, it's really unsettling that this was happening back in 2014. You've seen it happening recently as well. Like I don't care where you sit on the political spectrum. There is something very, very odd that's going on. They don't care about you and me. They only care about power and it doesn't matter who they mess with. So coming up in our plus extension, first of all, I recommend that you pick up the book, The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370. Incredibly well-researched. Uh, just a book that just keeps you on the edge of your seat. I didn't even touch on all the f- minute details yeah, that big. she goes into. It's like 450 just, pages, oh, right? Just crazy things of where data is being deleted, where like there was this one thing that happened where apparently there's a system known as Navtext. It's like these telex messages that get sent to all these ships, right? This message got sent to uh, all these vessels that were off the coast of Thailand and off the coast of Vietnam in the area where the ship probably disappeared. One of the um, sailors that was aboard took a photograph of this nav text with his phone. So he had it, right? Oh, right. And it was reporting. It was the 7th of March, 2014. So it was. It must have been given the... Um, the time frame. The time zone, yeah. The time zone, yeah. It must have been adjusted a little bit. But it was MH370 lost uh, contact, passengers 2380, something like that, or 238, uh, requested to look for crash. But within uh, moments, apparently, this thing was gone. And yet there was a photograph of it. So they didn't get rid of it completely. So very, very strange things of being easily able to remove data. If it was gone gone that quickly, that would suggest that it wasn't uh, an attempted hijacking and landing gone wrong. They no. just set out to destroy it, and they had all the steps in place to immediately affect the cover. Yeah, and later on we find out that the aircraft probably wasn't actually uh, landed at Diego Garcia. The plan probably was to land the aircraft at a CIA dark site uh, known as uh, Yatapur. But, I mean, doesn't the fact that he had this data in front of him and then it just simply vanished so quickly suggest that that was never their plan at all to land it anywhere? Exactly. Well, no, no, it was their plan. It was their plan to, to land it, but something went terribly wrong. And you right? think they can just react that quickly? They can react they just that remove quickly. data Look, within moments. The, what we find out later on, and this is something that I'll, I'll get to in the Plus extension, within an hour, they can deploy. They can deploy these terrifying uh, recovery aircraft to... What? Are you talking about exotic technology? It, mm, maybe. There is yes, there is exotic technology. And I wish I had a, I wish I had a plus membership. Yeah, like, I'm yeah. just a, s- a sad barnacle. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, sometimes as you say, we need to take the whale and like rub it up against a ship every now and again just to get rid of them. <laughs> dislodge a few. Yeah, dislodge a few. You know, <laughs> so we have a bit of a clean. I don't mind dislodging barnacles if they return as plus members. Look, this is the thing. remember I said about that U.S. staffer that was also doing their role. So this kind of validates that. There was a uh, a distress call that was picked up, even though this is being completely dismissed. There was a distress call Mm. that was picked up that was from the pilot of MH370 saying that his aircraft was disintegrating and he had to land. What caused his aircraft to disintegrate? I I did notice I had a little peek at her epilogue and that's where I was just going, holy crap, what? Who's that? What's he doing? Yeah. (laughs) Australia did what? I know. It's just some uh, some of the connections to... Uh, what's going on in the South China Sea with the islands being dredged up by China as well? Yep. This the implications of this are, are mind blowing. I'm, I'm look. What are you? You're gonna, you're gonna tease something else? I'm gonna tease one more thing. Right. So, or obviously they couldn't clean up everything. You can obviously change data and you can get into things, but it takes time to clean up the mess. 
So one thing that ended up in the interim report of the MH370 missing aircraft was that Malaysian air traffic controllers contacted Vietnam when they realized that the aircraft had had disappeared, right, off their radar. When they the Malaysian aircraft, this is all recorded, right? This is standard practice that it's recorded. So it was recorded that when Kuala Lumpur uh, air traffic control contacted Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, air traffic control, there was this discussion about the aircraft missing, right? And apparently in the transcript, something is said by Vietnam of aircraft is landing at XXXXX in crap. Right? Right? Apparently, Malaysia says, say again, silence. He then says, say again for Malaysia 370, silence, right? The transcript of the discussion, this uh, conversation ends here. Now, in the official report, right, this is all consistent with the distress, the, the distress call that was picked up. So the report actually acknowledges it. But this is the thing. It's like they were so foolish to miss this. I don't know why they missed it. But also in the interim report, just a few pages later, is that this second report comes through saying that that information was uh, incorrect and that it was an error or something along those lines, right? And apparently this came from a discussion between Vietnam and Malaysia. The thing is though, every single call is recorded, right? There's no trace of the call. There's no recording, even though the report's saying, no, 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 there was definitely a recording that this was an accident. This was incorrect. Later- Oh yeah, that's where it's conspicuous that it's missing. Do you know what else is conspicuous? They say that they got the information from a log, a handwritten log that contained information about this. When looking for the log, guess what? The log's gone as well. Can't find it. Can't find it. It is so conspicuous, the cover-up that is taking place. And yes, Ben, you're right. In our plus extension, we will describe potentially the exotic technology that was involved in the downing of MH370. And Jewish more... space lasers. No, well, <laughs> I don't know if they're Jewish, but let me just say that possibly space lasers... Are involved. Oh, really? I was just joking. I was yeah. Just, <laughs> well, not space I was lasers, just throwing a spa- meme out there. Highly advanced, sophisticated technology, electronic warfare uh, involving things like lasers. And cellular chicken nugget <laughs> memories. <laughs> All coming up in our Plus extension. Make sure you sign up today. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. You get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single week. We call it the answers section now. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> and you also get an entirely exclusive show uh, on Tuesdays as well. You're getting more than double the content if you sign up for Plus. You also get a higher quality audio version of the show, exclusive to Plus members, a totally ad-free version of the show, and uh, discounts off digital products in our store as well. It's nine bucks a month. Help support your favorite show. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash Plus for all the details. That's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out the show notes for all the books we've mentioned today. And uh, if you're on Plus, stick around for all the answers after the break. For everyone else, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. I'm looking forward to some answers, finding out what actually happened. Look, there is just so much to describe here that, it, as I said, like it is difficult to convey it, but I'll, I will make this kind of like the Cliff Notes version of what happened here. So we need to look at a couple of details before we move into possibly the operation that took place. I think from what I've described, you understand that 
there was something that was highly advanced that was on board MH370, likely drone technology. Later on, there's some speculation that it was actually stealth technology that could be used to disguise literally entire aircraft, like massive aircraft, beyond capabilities of what we believe that we have in the white world, you know, in in the black ops world. So something was on board that aircraft that was going to China that was possibly stolen by the Chinese, and the Americans had to intervene to prevent China from getting access to that technology. Before we go to that... Off the coast of Vietnam, there was this strange, unusual seismic event that took place 12 minutes after the distress call was recorded, right? So remember how he said that I'm the, the plane's disintegrating and I have to have to land? Yeah. 12 minutes later, uh, a Chinese seismic agency picked up two very odd seismic recordings. Now, the Chinese are like, this is not normal. Like, it doesn't actually happen in this area. Now, the Chinese didn't know anything about it. They just made it public. Like, they just publicly announced, like, oh, we picked up these weird events, right? These massive shocks. Now, Florence says that she didn't really understand what impact that had until in July of 2016, there was this unusual event that was recorded. It was a 3.7 magnitude rare event off the coast of Florida. What was revealed is that the Navy was performing some type of underwater test. It was some type of um, resilience. Uh, They wanted to test the resilience of combat ships, right? And I'm thinking... Is an aircraft crashing into the sea, is that going to cause a seismic event? No, probably not. It has to be something else, right? So this is where we get into the actual theory of what took place. And this relates to a man by the name of Christian Corset. Christian Corset is this Canadian citizen. He's in his mid-50s. He's worked for many years in the aviation industry. Now, uh, he was in... I'm not too sure if he was in Vietnam or if he was in Bangkok at the time, but on the night of the 8th of March, 2014... Uh, he was, I'm sorry, he was in his flat in, in Bangkok and he was watching TV and it just so happened that there was a, he was skipping through the channels and as he skipped through the channels, he came to a Vietnamese channel and he says, this thing has haunted him ever since he saw it. He said what he saw was that it was MH370 debris being recovered by Vietnamese authorities. According to him, he said that he could see the vertical stabilizer of the aircraft, the water was crystal clear. Um... You could see people that were walking out of the ocean holding a black or holding a like a, a black box, like clearly the black box flight recorder. What? But it was in a fish tank. And he's like, this is weird. He's like, why would it be in a fish tank? And he they carried off. And this is all caught on, on camera, right? And he says, then it just goes off the screen and it was gone. And obviously the whole narrative changed about what happened to MH370. But he's like, I saw this. I yeah. saw this with my own eyes. And Florence actually goes and investigates it. She goes to the um, the TV stations, she can't find any of this, right? And she thought that it was a bit strange. Corsay's recording or was saying that the, the debris was being pulled off fishing boats. It wasn't military ships. Now, what happened with the German guy? He said that there were fishing boats fishing that were trawling boats. the area. You've got these dots, these coincidences that are connecting, showing it's all the same kind of thing. But Florence... You know, she says that he seems to be believable, but why would they be carrying a a fish tank with this flight recorder? That's stupid. She spoke to aviation experts. These aviation experts said, no, that's actually standard practice. When you recover a flight recorder from the ocean, you actually keep it in what they call the aquarium. You keep it in a sample of the water in case it was damaged and it's oxidized when it's exposed to air. So you keep it in the water so you can actually extract it properly. Wow. A detail that yeah, it all matches up. Yeah. Like, how would you know that? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, apparently as well, there was a Vietnamese army official that was watching the operation that you could see on on the TV, but that was it. And she said after that, she went and checked online. She couldn't find any details. She spoke with authorities. She spoke with media outlets. 
So None this is interesting. I mean, Vietnam being a communist country and, and an ally with China is more likely going to do China's bidding than listen to an are. American request to clean up their mess. Of course So it, it, I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but does this suggest leverage to the Chinese? Potentially, yes. So um, before I get into how the Chinese are involved, you know, what was odd... The Chinese at, at, at that stage, when I said they had recorded those recordings, right, apparently the Americans turned around and said, no, that's absolute garbage. There's no such thing taking place. And Florence is like, she asked people connected with the Chinese of like, has the Americans, have the Americans ever commented on your seismic activity reports before? The Chinese are like, never, never. The Americans have never commented on it. But then why would they go to actually try and debunk mm. this seismic activity? It's It was kind of strange. So... Remember how I told you the story about the uh, Michael McKay, the uh, New Zealand guy that was working on the oil rig that said he saw a, a plane on fire, yep. right? So when he saw a plane on fire, uh, he apparently went and spoke to the authorities. He reported it to his boss and things were kind of strange because apparently he ended up getting fired from his job after he reported this. And this guy became quite scared because when he lost his job, it was apparently because he'd used a, a, a work computer for personal reasons which is just strange in itself. Looking right? at porn. Maybe looking at porn, <laughs> I don't know, but he got fired. Now, he went and spoke to Vietnamese authorities, and apparently when he spoke to Vietnamese authorities, he ended up becoming very scared. Like, he was very um, just odd about the way that he behaved, and there was a, I don't know if it was a French journalist, but another colleague of Florence went to go and meet with him, and he refused to meet with her. He's just like, no, I'm not meeting with her. And just through a happy coincidence, she ran into him in an airport, and when she ran into him in an airport, he totally freaked out. He's like, I can't talk to you about this. I just, nothing happened. Nothing happened, right? So he went home where another um, colleague of Florence, uh, a guy, was like, I'm going to hunt this guy down. I'm going to find him. So he goes through the electoral records, like the electoral roll, and he finds where this Mike McKay lives, and he goes to meet him. Now, he claims that he goes to meet this Mike McKay, and he sees this long driveway. This is in New Zealand. This is in Auckland. He walks up to the driveway where it just so happens there was a man. I don't know if he was getting his mail or what he was doing, but he was standing there. And this journalist says to him, are you Mike McKay? And he's like, uh, yeah, well, I, I don't want to talk about it. Straight away. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. I don't about want to talk about, it. It. Talk about leave. my name. Please leave. So he does. This journalist, but this journalist says as soon as he gets back into his car, this nondescript white vehicle just appears out of nowhere. Wow. Pulls in behind him. Making sure he doesn't squeak. And just sits and said that it followed him all the way back to his own hotel. Hmm. So he says either, this journalist who's also named Mike, said the guy was either under surveillance or he was under protection, which we're not entirely sure. So they're getting to everyone. Like, they're getting into everyone. And the reason why they're getting into everyone is because this terrible accident took place in a recovery operation. So the recovery operation, this is the, the hypothesis that's come through, is that the Chinese or someone connected with the Chinese had stolen the stealth technology. They'd gotten it off this cargo vessel, they'd gotten it into Malaysia, which was kind of a safety point, which they were flying it back to China. Now, as they were flying it back to China, this real life, this was plan A, which is what Florence refers to. This real life war game had taken place. So what would happen is the location where the aircraft actually had its, uh, its transponder switched off, right, was actually at a waypoint that was controlled by Singapore. Now, Singapore is a military partner, a loyal military partner to the US. Yeah, so it's the ideal location. Yeah where you could intercept this vehicle or you could intercept this aircraft. Apparently, two AWOCs, so AWOCs are these uh, large 
radar planes mm. that are extremely effective at jamming technology or utilizing jamming technology. So what the idea was is that these AWACS would fly- the ones with the big dishes on with top, With a big right? dish on the top, right? Yeah. One would fly above and one would fly below MH370 and would jam its signals, all of the signals, all of its transponder signals. And this would explain, this would nicely explain the progressive loss of those signals. Because as I said, there was like 30 seconds difference between the two signals that were coming from it. That would be consistent with two AWOCs putting their jamming technologies in wow, and yeah. flying right. So they were flying this plane together. What also happened is, if you look at the oddities by the MHs, like these are the people who are doing the online research, when you look at flight radar of this patch of sky at the time, all aircraft just disappear from the sky. Huh. All aircraft in almost like this circle kind of pattern, right? Which would be the distance exactly what of you would see from what you would see from radar. An electronic warfare except aircraft. Every other aircraft comes online except for MH370. Huh. Right? So this is consistent with air, um with radar jamming. So um as they're 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 watching this, there's this flurry of activity that was taking place, which was seen by villagers off the coast of Malaysia and Thailand. This is what they were seeing. So these are these big aircraft. Now the speculation is is that they were going to get the aircraft they were going to radio the pilot and say to the pilot, you have to land. You have to land the aircraft right. now before you hit Chinese airspace. Now, the pilot, apparently being this upstanding man and loyal to Malaysia, he would not have responded to a foreign power. He would have not. Oh. He would have said something this along the lines. matches his character. Matches his character. He would have said something along the lines of, I'm not landing this aircraft. I am heading towards Beijing. And he may have even sped up to try and reach Beijing. Now, remember, the flight data indicated that there were fast-moving aircraft, like jet fighters, that were in the region. So this is where we saw that was like, oh, was, was this data that had been faked? No, it was probably part of this mission, this plan to recover it. The Americans, though, had no intention of killing anybody. The intention was is that they would get the pilot to land the aircraft at an airbase that was remotely known, uh, I think it was in Vietnam. This airbase had an extremely long runway. It was a CIA asset location, and it would have been a place where it's been used for smuggling before, apparently. But they would land it, they would get the important equipment off the aircraft, and then would fly off again. And it would have been, it would have been said that there was like, a, you know, someone had a heart attack on the plane or something. The plane would have only been an hour late. Apparently, for China, that's nothing. Like aircrafts arrive out an hour or two late all the time. But it would have been a lesson for those in the know, as in the Chinese military or the higher ups in, in the Chinese political parties, that don't mess with the USA. We knew exactly what you're doing, and we can intercept your your smuggling anywhere in the world. Things didn't go right though because of what the pilot, the did. pilot yeah, did. So did. the pilot refused to land. So because, Stubborn bastard. <laughs> well, because the pilot refused to land, the theory goes is that um, there were some warning shots that were fired. When these warning shots were fired, it would have accidentally hit one of the other aircraft that was flying. We don't know if it was one of the jamming aircraft or if it was the other aircraft that were in the area that was traveling quickly. But that's what was seen by the oil worker, Mike, going down. It He's, wasn't the it MH370. Was MH370. It, was, it was another aircraft. That's a pretty big screw-up. It was an American aircraft, right? So what was happening, though, by the time, because he kept on refusing, and the AWOCs were following through, uh, they were about to hit Chinese airspace, or airspace that was monitored by China. The AWOCs, they had to make a decision to break off there because they didn't want to be detected by the Chinese. They broke off, and guess what they did? Another aircraft came in. The only option they have was to bring down MH370. Wow. Guess what they brought it down with? Lasers. Lasers. No, are you, lasers. are you serious? According to this, they brought it down with advanced laser technology, which is being tested by the U.S. military or oh had been gosh. already utilized by the U.S. military. And we yeah, know- well, I just I just did that segment a few weeks ago. We know that the U.S. military has laser technology. Yeah. And so what would have happened is it's consistent with the distress call as well because it would have caused the aircraft to disintegrate slowly. 
I was only joking about the secret Jewish space lasers. No, well, we don't close. know it's Jewish, but essentially it's not space or Jewish, but yes, it's a, it's a laser that apparently brought this thing down. Um, when it came down, right, uh, and the plane obviously crashed, they had to get rid of the parts. They had to destroy it. Those were the two seismic events that were recorded by the Chinese. Within right. an hour, and so what happened was it was within an hour, an hour and 20 minutes, I'm sorry, that the, um, the plane disappeared and the event took place, the seismic event took place. Now, Florence went and asked people that were in the know and they're in the in you know very high up echelons apparently that obviously wanted to keep themselves anonymous, but they said absolutely we can deploy within an hour less. We can deploy these uh, salvage teams or these groups that can essentially eradicate these aircraft by exploding them underwater. And that's exactly what took place because it's not that deep there; it's a shallow area. And within an hour, they'd blown up the debris and everything on board because uh, it's like an ordnance thing. You don't want to leave it to the enemy. They could not allow. It's not even about the aircraft. They could not allow the stealth technology that was aboard MH370 yeah. to get into the hands of the Chinese. Not even a sliver of it. Nothing, nothing at all. So they had to destroy it. That apparently is the two seismic events that were detected by the Chinese agency. Wow. Just kind of a, nuts. It's a nice fit. It's a very nice fit, right? So then there's other details, but why? It's like where? How is the child? How are the Chinese involved? You well, know, one uh, thing that I was uh, when I was skipping ahead and, and reading some, I think this was in her epilogue afterthoughts, was the uh, synchronicity between this event and all of a sudden China going gung ho in building up these islands in the Southeast China Sea. Exactly these artificial islands now. You know, commentators have often said that it's it's very suspicious that the United States just let this happen, that the the Navy did not at least try and intimidate against this activity of the Chinese creating active military missile stations mm-hmm. all across the Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. or sorry, Southeast China Sea. Yep, yep. Bizarre situation, but they started doing this in 2014, immediately after the MH370 disaster. Oh, look. So the, one of the suggestions I saw her make was that the Ch- the Chinese figured out what had happened. They obviously knew that they had this asset that was going to arrive. It didn't arrive so that, you know, they clearly would have figured out that it was taken out by the Americans. And they used this as leverage. They had the enough information they needed to expose this disaster mm-hmm. that America had shot down a plane with its own citizens on it. Mm-hmm. And they threatened to expose this. Now... One speculation is that the Obama administration made a deal with the CCP. They said, look, we won't expose this, but you stay out of our activities in the the Southeast China Sea, and if we build a few islands, you're going to turn a blind eye. And that's what happened. The president of China, Xi Jinping, called Obama the day after. Really? The day after. And apparently it was just to discuss the close ties that the US has to China. I don't think that's what happened at all. I think what the call was, and this is what Florence says, and I agree with her, and what you just said, we know what you've done, and we're going to reveal it to the world if you um, you know, don't basically play our game. And their game was that they wanted to take control of the South China Sea, and that you're exactly right, Ben. This is why the US and many military commentators have gone, what the hell is going on? The US did not intervene in this strange development and rapid development of military assets throughout the South China Sea, despite the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Japan, yeah. all going, ah, oh, and they, they've good. got those the Dong Feng missiles that will take out aircraft, American aircraft carriers. Yep, they've got them on those islands. So some of the speculation, how could they let that happen? Because apparently the speculation is that they that China is all bite and no bark. Sorry, so it was all bark and no bite, and that uh, that was a Freudian slip. But uh, those Dong Feng things don't actually work properly. 
Right. So they're just like, well, build whatever you want. It's not going to work. Uh, but like I could see, like it's, it's America trying to say, well, the elites in America, it's not American people, trying to save face. And Australia is involved. Like we're lackeys. So like, how much did we know obviously not, of the full story? We don't know. That. We, were we just following orders from our allies? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. And so there's a few... America other- says turn on the Dingo f- or turn off the Dingo 5000. <laughs> yeah, like, no exactly. worries, mate. It's off. Yeah. <laughs> so like, as I was saying, like that laser, it came from a Middle Eastern source that she was working with that's connected into this. And, and he said to her that, look, they have a system known as LAWS, which is L-A-W-S. And this is their laser system, which is being... And it's officially being tested by the US military. Mm. That's what they used, right? There's another thing that came up, which was odd, talking about the 7th Fleet, right? So there's this vessel in the 7th Fleet known as the US, uh, USS Pinckney. And what it was doing, it's the most technologically advanced ship to be put to sea, right? It was in the area of the Gulf of Thailand at the time. But for whatever reason, they cut off connection with um, all, uh, all families. So they said to everyone on board, you can't communicate with your families. They made, this is along like a couple of weeks in that period where MH370 had gone down. What is this, a ship? This is a ship, right? So the commander of the ship suddenly cut off contact with all families on board. Like, sailors couldn't contact their families. On top of that, they had a, a public Facebook page where they would communicate with other families that were on board this, you know, sailors on this vessel. Mm. And they had made some weird statement about, and this is, the, this is the skipper, making a statement about dealing with this tragedy and how difficult it is. But no one knew it was a tragedy. Mm. No one knew that it had crashed. See, we don't even know now it's crashed. Oh, I guess we do from the wreckage that came from, you know, off... Uh, off the coast of Africa. But even Florence, this is not something I went into, but even Florence says none of that wreckage has been validated. Like we say that with pieces have been found of MH370, none of it has actually been validated as coming from MH370 correctly of, through official channels. So it's like... The whole thing stinks. The whole thing stinks, right? So essentially, what about the other countries? Like who was involved? What about Malaysia? What about Vietnam? France. Like, France? Well, France didn't have anything to do with this, right? Even though they were trying to find out, they were being stopped at every point. But the countries involved, Vietnam, and someone from Vietnam would have been pulling, would know, pulling up all the the wreckage and this report that came through of being witnessed, you know, on television. So how did Vietnam get involved? Okay. So America struck a deal with China. America said, if you keep this quiet, you can build all these bases and, and we won't get involved. And China was like, okay, cool. Not a problem. What about Vietnam? Well, Vietnam kept their mouth shut. The reason why Vietnam kept their mouth shut is because uh, within days following this event, there was a uh, an arms embargo against Vietnam. Mm. It was eased. And then within six months, it was completely eradicated. Oh, wow. On top of that, <laughs> Vietnam got a $55.8 billion trade deficit deal in their favor with America. This is all in within after, weeks. <laughs> after this event, it was within weeks wow. and months after this event took place. And Malaysia... What about Malaysia, right? Malaysia kept their mouths shut because it would have been a significant embarrassment about their radar technology. So Malaysia is a mess when it comes to their military. They're an absolute mess. Their radars are not functioning properly. Uh, They really messed up everything about MH370. MH370 demonstrated just how inept they are. So Malaysia, to save face, kept their mouths shut. It is Australia a, was just like, yeah, we thought it was a whale. <laughs> <laughs> a turtle. It was a turtle. It was a bloody turtle. Oh, no. The other one. Following no, this bloody turtle Even better. No, I think one of the signals that was detected, it was determined to be a great white shark that had been swimming <laughs> from the coast of South Africa to- This is it. To, we found it, boys. Like, we found the plane. Oh, it's moving. Yeah. 
It's moving again. It's, you know what, though? It's it's really unsettling. And I think that this demonstrates just how much like the, the general populace don't know about the power plays that are going on in the background. Oh, yeah. And people are expendable. Oh, my gosh. You are expendable. You know, these poor families. I mean, I've seen the television shows of this poor woman whose husband was on this aircraft. She knows nothing. The government is giving her no details. And this is what is really important, particularly now in this world that we're living in, where we're being divided, where there's all this political unrest. It's all being done, I believe, to keep us distracted from the truth. And if you think that governments are out to protect you and look after you, I'm really sorry. You've got to think again. You've Gotta think again because they, they were don't. Look after me. They don't. They won't look after you. I thought you. they were going to give me a pod and give me some bugs. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll own nothing so and I'll what, be happy. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't, exactly. Exactly. This is about. I can't believe I sound so Alex Jones, but it really is about the political elites. These are powerful groups. It's not about money. It's about power. And nothing I, unreasonable with what you're saying. Look, I think now with this book, you know, this book. Yeah, while it's about. MH370, it's really important. It's about more than that. I think Florence has put herself in danger in some way because I think it actually demonstrates just how, you know, how much that if we don't know the true story and no one cares about the general populace. It's about whatever they can do to maintain their power. Americans happily working with the Chinese, even though they're a massive threat to the world. It's very, very well, dangerous I mean, that's, times that's that we're living in. The story of the relationship with China for the last, you know, 30 years. Well, exactly. The, the idea that if, as long as we traded with them, naturally uh, democracy would flower and take place. Oh, yeah. And then Hong Kong loses its <laughs> yeah, democracy. Which is the complete opposite has happened. Yeah. And you've got Wall Street to blame. You've got big business to blame. You've got uh, the the political establishments to to blame because they, they just, they've had this mentality for so long and they've been bought off with greed. Yep. That's exactly what it is. I think it is about greed. And, you know, you think that you, whatever political party that you're voting for has got your best intentions, they don't. I really believe that. I think there are some people that are trying to break through and, and make a difference. And that's why I actually even think, you know, that maybe this is why Trump was so hated, like so hated because he he's not a politician. He came in and he did mess things up. He did change things. And maybe that's why, like, everyone has stepped in to try and, and stop this. If this kind of stuff is going on in the background, if you bring an outsider in, messes everything up. I just, I don't know what to believe anymore. And I find it very unsettling and very disturbing. Well, I wanted to ask if her reputation has been smeared. Did you do a search no, for I, this? No, I, I didn't get a see, chance, but I'm sure it I, has. I guarantee you it has. I mean, this is what you see now whenever someone comes out against the status quo, mm -hmm. pretty much immediately their, their reputation is smeared. We're seeing this with people that are coming out with information on the, the vaccines. Uh, you know, there was a, a guy the other day that I can't remember his name, but this doctor came out with some serious questions about the the real um, wisdom in rolling out experimental vaccines to a huge amount of the population. And the very next day, there's a website, there's a domain purchased yeah. with his name completely smearing the guy, saying he's not a real scientist, he works on animals, like just making up all this crap. Do you know what all the the evidence that I need? Because look, I'm, I'm vaccinated against everything you could possibly imagine. I regularly get the flu shot, all that kind of stuff. I won't be getting this vaccine on, there's a whole range of reasons. I won't go into it in too much detail, but I just think there's something not right here. But the biggest thing that bothers me about this is that with these COVID vaccines, nine billionaires have been created. So let's not just forget about billionaires, but let's imagine how many millionaires have been created as well. If this virus is the biggest threat that exists to the human race at the moment, why is it not being made free? Why is it not being distributed? Why is it not like, why is it making billionaires? It all comes down to money. 
And that's what I find extremely unsettling about this, is that this is where we're getting into this danger zone. It's about money and it's about power. Well, I keep coming back to the idea that we don't understand everything about the human body and the true nature of health and well-being. Yep. And I think the, um, the, the story of the uh, cellular memory chicken nuggets... Good point. Perfectly Very demonstrates valid. that. Yes. Which is the story from Claire Sylvia, A Change of Heart, a memoir. I'm finding that the cornier the titles of the books I'm doing, <laughs> the, the, better the, the, the better the story. A Change of Heart, a memoir. So Claire Sylvia, she, let me give a bit of background and I'll, I'll go into the story. She grew up uh, as part of an extended Jewish family. Uh, she lived with her mother, her older sister, in her grandparents' apartment in the Bronx. Her father was overseas in, in World War II. He was a surgeon uh, with, with the army, constantly overseas. And they basically stayed in, again, in their grandparents' tiny apartment in the Bronx. They all had to share beds. Like, everyone was sleeping head to toe. Granddad had to sleep on the couch. Like, it was just cramped in there. Uh, but she talks about growing up in the household where... They, because they were they were Jewish Russian immigrants, like they ca they came over in 1913 to the United States. But in their family, in the tradition with uh, the, the Russian Jews, apparently was there's a big thing with dreams, like paying attention to your dreams is a cultural thing. Oh yeah, I've heard that kind of stuff. And she said, if you had a dream during the night, the next morning at the breakfast table, you told everyone in the family, and, and everyone would offer interpretations of your dream. And it was never like a psychological examination. It was always, oh, if you dreamt of a banana, that means your shoe's going to fall off. Like it, everything had some stamped in meaning. X. Yeah. If you dreamt X, it always meant Y. Like dream dictionary kind of stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So she grew up in this culture where you pay attention to your dreams. Dreams had real meaning. So she always did this. If you but, see a dingo, is it a plane crash? <laughs> yeah, but when she was growing up, she also had a bunch of psychic experiences. Like if a woman in her neighborhood became pregnant, somehow she knew about it before the woman had told anyone. She just, as a kid, she just knew. She doesn't know how or why, she just did. Or when something went missing, she would be the one to find it. Like it would just flash in her head where it was. Uh, she said, I, when I went roller skating with my friends, you know, had, had that competition where you're going around the rink and when the music stops, if you're in a particular corner, you win a prize. Oh, yeah, like musical chairs, but yeah. not... Yeah. She always knew when the music was going to stop and which corner would be the corner you had to stop in. And she never really thought about this stuff. It just happened to her a lot. And synchronicity as well. Long before she'd ever heard of Jung, she just in intrinsically understood that synchronicity was this real thing. She concluded that coincidences weren't random. They weren't accidents. There was some kind of design behind them. And this was self-evident to her. She felt that there was some kind of mysterious force at work in the universe that affects our lives. She just always thought this way. Even reincarnation, she said this was just a thing that she was never taught, but she just grew up believing it. She had a feeling that, for example, her mother had been a Catholic not so long ago, and perhaps even a Catholic who disliked Jews. It's a funny thing for a kid to think. Yeah, it is odd, isn't it? But she just had this feeling that her, her mother was paying some penance or learning a lesson from a previous life. So come and on. Just for the record, universe, if you're listening, I highly dislike very attractive rich billionaires. <laughs> I can't stand them and I would hate to be reborn as one. <laughs> just, just putting that out there to the universe. Uh, but when she was growing up, she had a bunch of really bad health problems. At three, she was diagnosed with a, a heart murmur. 
and obviously she would have to live with this her entire life. The doctor warned her parents, look, whatever Claire does, make sure it's not strenuous. She's not allowed to run. She's not allowed to sprint, run run upstairs, just do normal stuff that kids do. And she wanted to be an active child, but her parents were just always treating her like she was this fragile, frail thing. It's like that scene from Gattaca where they always freaked out when the kid, you know, skins his knee. Yeah, and she had constant cold and flus, like real trouble with humidity as well. Her body would become dehydrated. She could feel herself losing weight. Uh, even when she was much older and after she had married, she went on a trip to Africa and she just nearly died from the humidity. It's just, she's just a fragile person. Uh, she used to come down with colds all the time again, but it would always develop into bronchitis or turn into the flu or something. And she said, even when I felt fine, I was always aware of a serious imperfection at the center of my being. Because of my heart, I wasn't allowed to enter races or participate in anything rigorous. But dance ended up being her salvation. She actually started at the age of eight and it was like she was born for it. She just fell into this rhythm of movement and and felt like this was her purpose in life. It, when she was 10 years old, she got like the lead role in the high school Snow White dance and her parents said, absolutely not, you can't be a dancer. She was convinced she needed to be a ballerina. So it's obviously more than a murmur. It's obviously a significant heart defect. Well, her parents were just following what the doctor had said. The mm. doctor said, she, she can't do this. Um, but this just strengthened her resolve because she was, you know, getting into the teen years and she was becoming rebellious. Yeah. So it just made her want to do it even more. Uh, so she ended up, despite her parents' protests, they could see how good she was and how much she loved it. So she just kept doing it. And she ended up going to Adelphi College in Long Island on a scholarship with dance as her major. She was very, very talented. But in her senior year, disaster struck. Her feet started to swell up for no apparent reason. And she was diagnosed with this rare kidney disease. Oh. Again, this trend of just health problems constantly. She had glomerul onnephritis? Nephritis, yeah. Nephritis? Mm. Uh, she had to spend a month in hospital. And when she was released, the doctor basically sat her down and said, look, uh, you're never going to be able to dance again. And you're probably not going to be able to have children either. Just devastating news. Probably not pee either, like you're in trouble. Devastating news for a young woman. Um, and when she looked the condition up in the medical books, she was shocked to see that people often die from it. Yeah. But it was just so painful that she had to separate, like imagine your passion just suddenly being taken away from you. She had to separate herself from the world of dancing. She couldn't even look at someone doing a dance. It would just be too painful. And she found herself suddenly, like young woman out of college, she's got no goal. She's got no discipline, no calling, no plan, no dream. And she said, I just lived for the moment. She drank, she smoked, she ate without limits. She said pretty soon she was fat and out of shape. She said she drifted in and out of several jobs before finally getting her big gig in publishing. Very big gig. She got a position for, believe it or not, Hairdo Magazine. Hairdo Magazine? Is that a big deal? I'm not familiar. <laughs> Obviously not. I'm joking. I know. I'm being smart. <laughs> Hairdo Magazine. Uh, she's joking. She said, like, even the crappiest jobs lead to good things, though, because one day this new girl came into the office to work at Hairdo Magazine, and her boyfriend was connected with a, a dance company, a New York dance company. And she became friends with this more this woman named Maureen. And Maureen was really pushy. And she heard about Claire's story and said, oh, you used to be a dancer. Like, you've got to, 
you've got to get dancing again. And she she happened to know through her boyfriend this company and they were looking out for new dancers. So because she was so persuasive, she convinced Claire, even though she's like completely fat and overweight, she hasn't danced in over a year, she convinced her to go in for this audition. So she, even though she's like chain smoking and <laughs> couldn't really move as well as she could before, she went in for this audition and the owners of this dance company were like, oh, well, you know, you'll hear from us or we'll, we'll, yeah, call, we'll you. call you. Yeah. Amazingly, they called back and offered her the job. She couldn't believe it. And she felt like her getting this shitty job at Hairdo Magazine was meant to be. It's mm. like this moment of... Well, she said she's used to coincidences <laughs> yeah. and synchronicities. Like when I was in high school, everyone had uh, this really high-paying job at one of the uh, supermarkets. Like everyone got a job at the supermarket, but not me. I went to this uh, tiny little computer company where they paid me peanuts. Like my, I was getting six bucks an hour and my friends were getting like $10 an hour. And I was always jealous of how much they were making. But I love this little little company because of all the people that worked there. And one of the the bosses of this company was a devout Buddhist. And I was just getting into Buddhism at the time. And looking back on it now... That's why I realized I had that job. Yeah, because there was, and there was another guy who owned the company, and he told me the story of how they started from scratch and how they built up this company from nothing. And it gave me this entrepreneurial idea of, oh, wow, you can really can start a business from nothing. And then there was this, the other owner was a Buddhist, and I had all this, you know, Buddhist information from him. And I look back on that moment and go, that was a shitty job that changed my life. Absolutely. It was this really, and she had the same thing with Hairdo magazine. So she became a dancer again because of this. And when she went back to the doctor for a checkup, because the doctor was like, you're never going to dance again. The doctor was amazed because her kidneys had healed. She had this kind of miraculous... Like spontaneous? Yeah, like this miraculous spontaneous... Or maybe it was a case of just always trust the science. Like yeah. Whatever the doctor says is 100% true. And she says that's how she was. But now he said, oh, no, you're actually fine. Uh, she went on to dance internationally for several companies she got married to her husband, Ira. She gave birth to a daughter, Amara, in 1972. Uh, she ends up moving to Boston. She goes through a bunch of husbands in this story. I think she's got, like, husband number four <laughs> by the end of the story. Uh, which brings us to the, the spring of 1985. She's 45. Her life is going well. She's in love again with a new man. And on a pleasant Sunday morning, she picks up a Parade magazine, which is inside the the Boston Globe, the Sunday edition. You know, they've got those glossy pull-out magazines. And she's flipping through this, and there's this smiling woman about her age. And she, she looks at this story, and her name's Mary Golke. And she starts reading the story, and Mary had four years earlier had been the first person to survive a combined heart-lung transplant. Transplant. And she started reading this story and she realized that this woman had primary pulmonary hypertension. And when Claire read this story, like read this sentence in the article, she nearly fell off her chair because that's what her doctor had diagnosed her with about a week earlier. And he hadn't used the words very serious disease. She was under the impression that she just had this this thing. Minor issue. Yeah. And he, she's reading this article of this woman that had to get her lungs taken out and a new heart put in. Uh, and she goes into a bit of history of how, you know, she hit her kind of early 40s and just started to feel out of breath all the time. Yeah. And because she's a dance teacher, it's kind of hard to maintain 
what she was doing. She thought maybe it was just old age, but it just started to get worse and worse and worse. So she goes back to see her cardiologist and he's like, she's like, I, I read this article, this primary pulmonary hypertension. What? It seems pretty bad. And he's like, well, the good news is you won't really need surgery. We can control it through medication. He sounds like a doctor who just doesn't want to deliver bad news mm. because she does some more research into it. And she eventually finds out that within three to five years, anyone that has this condition is dead. That's the most likely... No, you can treat dead with medication. Yeah, and he's like, well, I mean, dead isn't the end. You'll be reincarnated. I mean, what? <laughs> he's just, he, he couldn't deliver this bad news. Uh, and she, she starts doing research and finding out that she actually has this serious illness. And of course, because she now has this knowledge, her symptoms start getting worse and worse and worse. The fatigue becomes more intense. She tries to hide it from her friends and colleagues, but she can barely climb a few stairs uh, before she gets puffed out. So ultimately, he puts her on the list for a transplant at, um, I can't remember what, I think it's John Hopkins oh, okay. Universe, um, the, the hospital there. Yeah. And uh, she ends up finding a, a psychotherapist and she starts kind of facing death. Like she realizes the odds of getting a, a transplant are very, very slim. You can be on this waiting list for years. She can feel her body shrinking and losing its muscle tone. Her vitality is going. She's wasting away and she's only 47. Now, when she went into John Hopkins, she says that you actually get evaluated. Like it's, it's like a job interview. To get on, to even get on the list, yeah, because they don't want someone going in for a transplant and be like, to keep yeah, on smoking and drinking. Once and- I get this new heart, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do some speed. We're gonna run it into the ground. <laughs> Go buy a motorcycle and do some speed. The, you've got to pass their interview to basically make sure you're gonna look after what you get. Yeah, I've heard stories of that of people that they can't give up smoking, so they they end up just being kicked off the list. Yeah, you don't get or on the list. On, yeah, don't get on in the first place. You, you've really got to you know wear your best and and yeah. be on a <laughs> practice. But you for know the interview. what? Because even back then, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, uh, rejection technologies for medications have gotten better now. But even back then, it's like there was only so many organs to go around and had to go to people that were considered to be grateful. It's, and it's got to be a perfect match. So if the organs are too big, for example, they're, they're not going to fit yeah. or it's the wrong blood type. There's so many reasons why it won't match. So the odds are, are long odds. Did she stub a cigarette out in the carpet in front of them? That's right, honey. <laughs> Give me one of those pair of lungs. <laughs> so there's some good news, though. She's on the list at John Hopkins, but she gets... Because she's living in... Um, New England at the time, and she discovers that Yale New Haven Hospital is about to become the fourth medical centre in the country and the first in New England to perform heart-lung transplants. And this is right around the corner from her, so she gives them a call. They say, come in immediately. She does well in the interview, and the the doctor, Gail Eddy, says, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to put you on the list. Like, we're probably waiting two years to get, you know, government federal approval Approval, to do the program, but uh, you're you're right on the list with like three other people. So she's like, okay, two years, I can wait two years. The very next day, she gets a call. The very next day. It's Gail Eddy again, it's the doctor. She says, "Um, Claire, we've got a donor for you. And she says, uh, we've got a donor for you today. And the phone's just silent. She cannot believe it. She says, you've got about two hours to get to the hospital, 
let's do, do you want to do this? And she's just silent. She can't believe it. So, of course, you know, they call a helicopter for her. She yeah. flies over the hospital. She said by the time she finally gets the organs and she's brought into the operating room, it's three in the morning. And the final words to her are from the surgeon who's doing this, the first one in the state ever, a Dr. Baldwin. His experience in, in I think, he went did Stanford transplants. But the last thing he says to her before she goes under is, well... You know, nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, uh, she may not survive this. I've had a bunch of cases where someone's dropped the lungs when they've come to the uh, come to the hospital, and yeah. you know, someone, once a heart fell down a drain, and once sometimes instead of a heart, there was a turkey in the box. So <laughs> I don't know anything. Anything could happen. And she's like, "Are you serious?" And she just—that's oh. the last thing. It's like, what, what is the bedside manner of this guy? He just literally tells her, "Anything could happen." You Why would you just say, you. I'll see you on the other side, you're going to be fine? Yeah. Even if that's not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't just, get yeah, it. Yeah, it's like placebo effect. <laughs> He's like the worst bedside manner. Uh, but there's this chapter explaining the whole process of how the organs come from the donor and get to the, to the hospital. I, I won't go through that. All we need to know is that we learn it's from a male, heart and lungs from a male. He was 18. Cause of death was a head injury from a motorcycle accident. And the heart and lungs were suitable for donation. That's all we know. And she says, I, I knew none of this because while all this was playing out, I was in a faraway, remote and mysterious place. She was floating effortlessly in another world over Egypt. Cool. She said, I was dressed in white and next to me was a huge marble column. Why the hell was I in Egypt, she said. Is this a dream? Is this hallucination? How, am I dead? And this is the other world. <laughs> like, what do I do now? And as she's having these thoughts of, you know, what am I doing in, in Egypt? Egypt starts slowly evaporating and there's this weird buzz. And it slowly morphs into, Claire, wake up. Claire, wake up. It's over, Claire. And she's gently awakening and she's like, why are they calling my, why are they telling me my name? Why are they saying my name? Just tell me, did it work? Am I dead? Tell me if it worked. Did I get the heart? Did it work? And she's like wiggling her fingers because she can't talk. Her, her throat's all seized up and dry. She's wiggling her fingers and someone in the operation room realizes, oh, she wants a pen. They mm. get her a pen. She's like, did it work? Yeah. <laughs> and finally, uh, someone says, like, well, oh, you're alive. Oh, yes, uh, everything went well. Uh, everything's fine. You're good. She's like, oh, she goes back into darkness. So she slowly recovers. Uh, by the third day, she's riding an exercise bike and it feels amazing. And again, as I mentioned at the start of the show, because she was the first in the state to get the, this kind of operation, uh, there's press everywhere. Yeah, media attention. One of the reporters asks her, like, what do you want to do right now more than anything else? She's like, I'm really dying for a beer. And she said, again, as soon as the words came out of her mouth, she just wished she could pull them back in. She was mortified because it was such a sincere question and she has this like, a flippant response. And she's like, I don't even like beer. I don't know why I said it. And as soon as the reporters left, this mo weird notion enters her mind. Maybe the donor of these organs had been a beer drinker. Was it possible, she said, that my new heart had reached me with its own set of tastes and preferences? It was a fascinating idea. For a moment or two, she rolled it around her head. But then she just let it go. She thought, that's crazy. Now, by the fifth day, uh, the nurses had told her she was she was doing fine. The problem was 
her, her body was doing fine, but she had severe depression because she was going through an identity crisis. She, maybe she says this occurred because she'd always been a dancer and dancers are really in touch with her body. And now all of a sudden- foreign. There's something foreign that's mm. never been there before. And she's thinking, how does it fit into me? And she actually went through this situation where she was, she felt suicidal, really seriously suicidal. Um, and she had all these dreams about drinking milk before the surgery that ended up coming true. What do you mean? <laughs> like she had all these dreams where this surgery was a success, but she just had to drink heaps of milk. And when the nurses finally came to her after she'd recovered, they explained that there's this drug you got to drink every day so that the organs don't get rejected. Ah. And you have you usually have it in milk. So she realized that was what the dream was from because she had to drink milk every day. Mm. And she <laughs> it's pretty weird. Um she goes to the the surgeon that performed the the surgery for help, Dr. Baldwin, and she's like I need a psychologist. Like I I'm I'm going crazy. And he just says, just keep riding your bike. Don't even think about it. Just act normal. He's like, but doctor, thinking about my head is normal for me. And he's like, listen, Claire, stop all this touchy-feely stuff and get on with your life. You came to me for this radical procedure, not some crazy psychotherapist. Just shut up. <laughs> she's like, she's really shattered because he's his concept of health, which is what I'm alluding to earlier with what we don't actually understand the true nature of the human body. He's just treating it like a machine. Yeah, that she's breathing and that she's walking around. That's enough. Even from that point of view, she's like, yeah, I'm this machine. I've got a new piece, but there's all this other stuff attached to it. There's something weird going on. So what kind of gets her over this depression is she's visited briefly by uh, someone who had a heart transplant. And he said, don't worry. I know what you're going through. It feels crazy now. It gets better every day. She vows to start a support group for people that have had this surgery because she reasons, well, you know, who would understand them except someone else who has gone through it. And it's nascent as well. So, you know, there wouldn't be many people that have experienced it. They need support. Exactly. So the way her recovery situation worked is, it sounds pretty sweet, actually. The hospital gives her a condo she lives in for three months and it's right next to the hospital. She has a housekeeper. Uh, it's basically ev- everything's taken care of because she's this special special first case. They want to make sure yep. she survives, obviously. Yep. Um, and she has this wonderful experience where, you know, she can now bend over and pick up the soap in the shower without having like a minor heart attack, mm. which was what it was like before. Uh, and her spirit was returning. And during the summer in this condo, she she had this experience of leading a, a, a normal life. And for the first time in ages, she could eat almost anything she wanted. She kind of felt amazing. But she said, to my surprise, I developed a sudden fondness for certain foods that I hadn't liked before. Now, all of a sudden, she just wants to eat Snickers bars and Reese's peanut butter cups. She's like, I, I don't even like them. Yeah, Why? I was going to ask because she had an interest in them before, no. taste for them. She just wants to eat them. She's having a strange new affinity for green peppers. She hates green peppers. Just can't stand them. If they're in her salad, you know, like green caps. Yeah. If they're in her salad, she removes them. Bell peppers. She never eats them. She never eats them. She thinks they're gross. After the transplant, every single meal has to have green peppers on it. She doesn't understand why. She just has to eat them. She's constantly eating them. And when she was finally allowed to drive again, she said her car 
practically steered itself <laughs> to the closest KFC. So you mean her? She's like controlling it, but there's something else that's there's controlling her. Some hidden force following an inner GPS to the closest KFC. She goes to the drive-through. She's like, "Give me all the chicken nuggets in the store." Yeah. She desperately wanted chicken nuggets. She couldn't understand it. She's like, "What is going on now?" One of the regular visitors at the condo was this man in her life. His name was Cal. Uh, he was a Boston psychologist. And they kind of had this romantic thing going on, right? And pretty quick, like the doctors had said, you know, you can have sex six weeks after the operation. It should be fine. But she's still like, the whole idea frightened her. She was worried that her heart would explode or something. Yeah, also really, are you thinking about that six weeks after you have a massive operation? I'd be pretty horny <laughs> a week after a massive <laughs> operation. Um, but the thing that came into her mind, she actually started to wonder, is it conceivable that this new male heart that I have might affect me sexually? Oh. And she's like... Yeah, well, I guess so. Probably not, right? Probably not. But it was affecting her personality. She noticed that she no longer felt lonely when she was by herself. Like, she always had to have people around, like a, a husband or a friend or, you know, family... Now she's like, Wh whatever, I'll you just know, go work in the shed. That's also more common than, than you think. I've heard reports of people that have had these weird memories that come from transplants where they actually feel like there's another person with them. Okay, so that comes up. She says, sometimes I had the feeling that somebody else was in there with me, that in some intangible way, my sense of I had become a we. You're spot on. She said, although I, I, I couldn't always detect this extra presence... At times it felt as if a second soul was sharing my body. Mm. She said, I wondered about these feelings, but I mean, she wasn't really taking them seriously. She just thought, this is, this is kind of weird, but I'm obviously just recovering from this traumatic event. But this new male energy did seem to be affecting her. Because until the transplant, she had spent most of her life uh, in a relationship with a man. She either had a boyfriend or an interest or she was married. But for years after the operation, she was still attracted to men, she said. But she didn't have that same need to, to be chasing a boyfriend. She was freer and more independent than before. And her whole life had this slight masculine outlook to it. She said most men, at least the ones I've known, just don't crave the closeness of an intimate connection the way women do. 100% true. I agree with that. They may enjoy being in a relationship, she says, but they don't feel incomplete without one. And she said, for the first time in my life, I didn't either. <laughs> She's like, she just wants to watch the football and have a few beers and then maybe go to her shed and, and make a train set. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't necessarily get all men are like that, but maybe could, it's more of a male trait, I suppose. It's definitely a masculine trait, right? To not have this need to have a, a loving partner all around all the time, right? You can, men can be, uh, be perhaps a little bit more independent in yeah, that way. maybe. I know women that are like that. Yeah, obviously, we're speaking very broadly. She said, my personality was changing too and becoming more masculine. I was more aggressive and more assertive than I used to be and more confident as well. She said, I felt I knew things that men knew, things I hadn't known as a woman and that seemed to have come to me from some other place. She said, it was a subtle feeling as though I'd been entrusted with some secret man knowledge that I didn't completely understand. <laughs> There's no secret man knowledge. But get this. One day she's she's just walking along and her daughter Amara says, um, Mum, why are you walking like that? 
And she's like, what do you mean? She says, you're kind of lumbering like a football player. And then one of her dance friends pointed out the same thing and said, Claire, you're actually strutting. What is wrong with you? She realised she was walking like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. Men don't <laughs> walk like, like that. Dude, have you seen yourself strutting around the office with, <laughs> like a peacock after you've been to the gym? Radiating tea through the walls? Yeah, okay, that does happen sometimes. She had this new swagger, this self-assurance. And it really did feel like John Travolta in Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever. And remember, the theme song to that film is Staying, Staying Alive. alive. Oh, come on. Huh? I must say that did come into my mind. It wasn't just her walk. She had this new power that she associated with masculinity, strength, vibrancy. This certain feminine tentativeness she had had fallen away. It was replaced by this new confidence. And years after the operation, her cousin Sharon actually hugged her after the transplant and uh, came to her and said, you know what? When I gave you that hug, you were giving off heat, like the heat you sometimes feel when you hug a man. (laughs) <laughs> and I get that a lot. I always, I'm always giving off heat. <laughs> this is why sleeping at night. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have to sleep in air conditioning. I always have. I cannot yeah. have any more than a sheet yeah. most nights on me. I mean, and I look over freezing? at my wife. She's got like <laughs> 10 layers, socks, a beanie on. I'm just lying there sweating. Yeah. This is pretty normal. Uh, and, and sometimes people ask her whether her sexual preferences have changed. She says, look, this hasn't happened in an overt way, but she said, I'm often drawn to, wom- to, to women who, as a woman, I, I wouldn't have thought were especially attractive. She says she has like a type now that she notices. She said before the transplant, she'd look at like tall, slender, dark women and think, oh, you know, she's an attractive woman. But after the transplant, she's like, hmm, she likes... Like, not likes, but she notices shorter, rounder blondes. <laughs> She's like, so she actually has like some, yeah, weird like not preference verbally in her mind, but some part of her is like dead ass <laughs> when she sees something, right? Um, she says it's as if some male energy is responding to it, and she's she's obviously she's heterosexual, she says, but um, she gives a little story like there was a conference she went to in Boston after the transplant. And that she met this beautiful blonde Dutch woman there. And they were very friendly. You know, they went out for dinner and they were getting along. And she said, oh, why don't you come over to my house? She said this to the Dutch woman. Uh, you know, before you go fly back, you come over for a while and, and we'll hang out and I'll show you some of the local sites. And this Dutch woman's like, yeah, great. Sounds good. All very innocent on her part. But as soon as it came to the evening, this Dutch woman started making moves on her and clearly wanted a, a sexual relationship. And she's like, she declined the invitation but the the other uh, Dutch woman was just astonished that she wasn't interested. And Why? Then, well, well, because Claire was obviously giving off all these signals, and she's like, I, I didn't. I was wondering what kind of signals I'd been sending without <laughs> even realizing it. What did she throw a handbag at a river in front of her? Is that what she? No, did? she just had that John Travolta strut. She was just like, <laughs> that doesn't mean I you're don't know a if lesbian. You've seen Saturday Night, Saturday Night Fever, but it's I haven't actually. When I think of it, there's some pretty um dark scenes in there. Um. Also, several dreams she had where she was living with or getting married to a woman. Again, totally out of character, totally out of the blue. It's not never been a part of her life before. It's It doesn't make sense. But yet she has the heart and lungs of a man. And then we have the dream. 
So shortly after she moved out of that apartment that the hospital had provided, she moved back home. She had the most unforgettable dream of her life. She said she was in an open outdoor place. There's grass all around. It's summer and with her is this young man. He's tall, thin and wiry. He's got sandy coloured hair and his name is Tim. She says, I think it's Tim Layton, but I'm not sure. She just gets this feeling that it's Tim L. And they're in a playful relationship. They're good friends. It's time for, for her to leave him. She, she needs to go and join a performing group of acrobats in this dream. And she starts to walk away from him, but suddenly feels that there's something unfinished between them. She turns around to say goodbye to this guy and he's smiling at her as if he's pleased that she's coming back to him. He, she walks up to him and they kiss. And she says, as we kiss, I start inhaling him into my body. It feels like the deepest breath I've ever taken. And now I know that Tim is inside me and he will be with me forever. So it's like a metaphor. Now, all remember, all she knows about the donor is that it's a male. And one of the nurses slipped that he was on a motorcycle when he died. That's all she knows. Male 18 on a motorcycle. And she starts to think, this. why would I have a name? Like Tim L? Is this... I've breathed in this guy. Is this my donor? Uh, uh, his heart and lungs somehow is a part of his spirit now within me. Now, she she needs to find out, but there's this confidentiality law with the hospital. You just can't get the information on the donor and it's vice versa as well. They can't get information on who, the family can't get information on who received it. But is she calls- standard? Yeah, it's pretty much standard. She calls the hospital anyway and speaks to Gail, the doctor she's been dealing with from the start. And she knows that Gail can't reveal the donor's name, but she's like, I'm going to see what her reaction is when I say Tim L. And she describes the dream and she says, you know, I got the name Tim L. And immediately there's silence on the other end of the line. And this uh, doctor, Gail, she says, no, 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 you can't know that. I'm not supposed to discuss this with you. Please, Claire, you've got to let this go. Even if you succeed in tracking down the family, you're just opening up a can of worms. So obviously this is a confirmation, like she's acting strange. And Claire's like, well, what do you mean a can of worms? And she says, look, you can never predict how the donor's family will respond. People have all kinds of reactions. You've got to let it go. She says this topic is just too emotional and unpredictable. Now she's disappointed by Gail's response. She agrees to drop the subject, but the dreams keep coming. A few weeks later, the same guy, Tim, appears in another dream. In the dream, she's a man who's changed into a woman. Sounds familiar. She's driving fast, speeding around a, a series of hairpin turns and just loving it. Suddenly, she can't make uh, one of the terms, the turns, and she flies across the highway over the divide and into oncoming traffic. It, and it's like she's flying through the air uh, it's like the ending of Thelma and Louise like, yeah. <laughs> flying off in the car. The next thing she knows, she says, I'm with a whole new family. They're preparing for their daughter's wedding, which is tomorrow. Their daughter is young, blonde and attractive. Now I'm a man again and I tell my new family that I have to leave on my plane to go back to where I came from. Then I realize I shouldn't go to my old family, that it's not right, that I should stay here. I'm surrounded by my new family. They describe how they pulled me out of the wreckage after I had crashed. I tell them I'm grateful and that there is nothing to fear in death, that I remember nothing from the moment I flew off the highway. 
I don't even know whether I died. It's like forgetting a dream after you wake up. So this is really strange because she's dreaming, but it seems like it's not from her perspective. It's from the donor's perspective. Mm. He And we hear this, we've heard this with, um, you know, communications with spirits who, or people who don't realize they're dead. Yeah. Where they've, They've just gone to some other person in a lot of spirit possession cases. I was going to ask you, is that what you're suggesting has happened here? That it, is it not that the soul or the, the traits of the donor is actually infused into the organs, but rather his spirit is just attached to whatever is left? I think it's a, a bit from column A and a bit from column B. Mm. Is he saying, I'm with this whole new family, like he's aware of her family? He tries to go back to his old family, he says, but he realises he needs to stay. Like, he's somehow attached to the physical nature of his organs. Like, his spirit is chained to it somehow. Think about it. Like, if your spirit has left, like, if the whole point, because obviously organ transplants is not something that is, you know, uh, happens naturally. Mm. It's something that's intervention. But your, your spirit tries to leave, but there's still a living part of you being kept alive somewhere. So it's not even like if you've been... Uh, once a body's dead, it's dead, right? But part of you is still living. So does your soul or your spirit remain attached to that? Does that happen to every person that is donating their organs? Yeah, because his whole vessel hasn't expired. There's still yeah. a part of the vessel. You can't end the level. Exactly. It, it hasn't finished yet. So is he is he tethered to the physical flesh that's still alive? Is this the connection with spirit that hasn't been broken? Well, doesn't that have some really profound implications, though, for the whole transplant idea like it really would change everything if that was actually acknowledged if that was something that was occurring because we don't know but yeah. if it was well and he's talking about, everything. he's talking about a marriage a marriage between a man and a woman and and she's like that symbolizes them merging into the same body uh and there's stories that emerge from the support group she had right there's a man who uh, told her that he had never remembered his dreams except for this one dream he had right after his transplant he got a heart transplant He dreamed he had died, but that when you die, you don't really die. You just enter somebody else's body. As the dream began, he went into a darkened state where he saw himself being covered by a sheet. His family and friends came to him and he knew he had to pray to bring in the light. The room started to get brighter and brighter and brighter, but he found this terrifying. So he basically fled. Now, we again, we've heard stories where in spirit possession cases where the entity is being removed, they basically describe being a confused spirit after they've died. They, there's, That's right. There yeah. are specific cases where they describe, oh, no, I, I can't go near the light because if I go near the light, I'll leave. So they run away and then they become like a... They're stuck. Yeah, they're stuck a on this plane. Spirit. And they find themselves somehow getting into someone's body and getting stuck there. Yeah. It's like he's describing that exact experience. But his own body. Well, his own parts of his own body. Well, it's also like he's dreaming. This guy's dreaming. Yeah, the the donor. So uh, when she moves back home, she gets out of the condo. Everything's foreign to her. Like she she recognizes friends and family, but she's she's like, who are they really? She said it was like the movie Robocop when Robocop returns home. Yeah. <laughs> just sits at the front of the place looking. <laughs> he's so confused. Um, she has to reforge her relationships. And she notices that her heart feels more deeply as well. It's more capable. It's different to her old heart. Emotions are stronger. Things are like fight. Like she's got a fiery temper, and like everything's different. Um, the only thing that she could watch on television was like she couldn't watch anything violent. 
And here's another clue. The movie Ghost came out around this time. So she saw the movie Ghost. She flips out when she sees Ghost. Like there's some part of her that's like, oh my God, oh my God. She, it's so terrifying and scary. The concept of a spirit being dislodged and being ch- like chased and it's almost like she wasn't scared of it. The donor, Tim L, is scared of the movie. Uh. She doesn't understand why she's crying and she's crying all night and she can't understand how she's so affected by this movie. Because it's like he knows Tim. that he died, he was a spirit. Yeah. He sees it in the movie, he's terrified. There were some upsides though. Unlimited energy. So much energy. She said she used to go to bed fairly early. After the transplant, she's like partying all night. She said she started to spend more time with younger people and less time with friends her age. Remember, she's nearly 50. She's hanging out with 20-year-olds. She's hitting the clubs. She said, increasingly, I was attracted to people who were younger than I was and also noticed that men who were flirting with me were considerably younger than normal. She said... Maybe it was like my John Travolta libido that I was uh, spitting out, but or it's actually, she says, every recipient I've spoken to that's had like a heart transplant, if they've received the heart of a young donor, they always say this. Hmm. They have like unlimited energy. They start attracting like the younger, younger version of the opposite sex. Is it like an extreme version of adrenochrome? It's like having a blood boy yeah. permanently yeah. in your body. Yeah. Um, she said once in the supermarket I saw a tab line and it had the headline woman gets new heart goes sex crazy <laughs> and she said like it's it's obviously like a silly headline yeah. but there's a grain of truth it's to like it a National Enquirer headline she just had this um, massive improvement in her libido in her health uh, all her health problems vanished like she used to get migraines every week never had a migraine since the transplant uh, she never got sick, never got colds. She used to get them all the time. Her low blood sugar problem that she had completely disappeared. Disappeared. She started to get hair in weird places, <laughs> which There's probably more consistent with men. Probably was the drugs, but just um, she was strong. She was resilient. She had this frenetic energy, and she was hyperactive. Like she had to go be doing stuff all the time, doing, 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 had, like doing sports and. It's like crazy for a 50-year-old woman to have this much energy. Mm. Uh, and she said, would I ever learn anything about this donor? Is this his personality to just be this kind of crazy, do-everything kind of person? Eventually, gets she gets in touch with this Jungian analyst named Robert Bosnak. Um, and it's funny because when she calls his institute, the secretary's like, ah, oh, he's busy, everything's booked out. She persists and calls him directly. And she says, uh, look, you know, and he's basically, I can't see anyone privately, like I'm too busy. And she says, oh, can you recommend anyone? I've had this heart-lung transplant and I've been having all these crazy dreams ever since. And he's just like, you've had a transplant? She says, yeah, last year. Uh, I think I've got time on Tuesday afternoon. And he immediately gets her in. Now get this for synchronicity, right? This, uh, this Jungian analyst, Robert Bosnak, he was working on a uh, novel, and his novel was about a psychiatrist and his girlfriend who were victims of like a violent double murder, a mugging or something gone wrong. Um, except the girlfriend is killed, but he survives. He's just badly wounded, but he desperately needs a new heart, which he gets from his girlfriend. 
When he finally recovers, the psychiatrist in his story realizes that he's reacting to events in like his girlfriend would. He's basically taken on the personality of his girlfriend to a degree. This was the novel he's working on. That is a weird synchronicity. Out of the blue, Claire calls him and she's, without her knowing, she ex- everything she's talking about was in his novel. And they just happen to come together, these two. It's really strange. So he basically helps her expand her support group and they start working together to try and find more people that have had this experience to try and understand what's going on. And eventually they get quite a sizable group together of new heart receivers of transplants, uh, people that have had heart and lungs as well. And this theme that came up with all of them, like you mentioned before, was they always feel like they're not alone. Yeah, They said uh, each of us had some point where we would think of our heart as an other and some form of communication was taking place. So he's got a bunch of cases where um, the, the feelings of another presence were more diffuse, but people would talk to their hearts directly. Like one guy, before he would go into a biopsy, he would talk to his heart like it was another person. He'd be like, okay, look, dude, like you and me, we've got to get through this. Like if you start screwing up, we're both going to die. So if you want to make this work, you know, we, we've got to work together. And then he'd go into the biopsy and everything would be fine. And he felt like he he had another, he felt like it wasn't me, it was us. Yeah. Me and another person. Uh, only one participant was a social worker named Mary. She claimed she never experienced her heart as an other. It was always her heart. But once she got to know everyone in that tight circle of um, experiences, she spoke about how after she got her transplant, she had some rejection like someone left her or something. And an image came to her of two spirits who were fighting inside her body. She said, one of them was me and the other one, I guess, was the donor who didn't want me to have the heart. I know my heart came from a woman and this struggle between us was a bit like a cat fight. <laughs> so it's sort of like, that's annoying. You get a, a heart from a nasty bitch and she's trying to take it back and you're like, no, nah, it's my heart now. So what happened? Did well, she said... Um, she her because everyone else's approach was like we've got to work as a team and we can get through this together. This woman Mary, she was like, "Fuck off! This is my heart now." She said, "You belong to me now. You are in somebody else's heart or somebody else's body. Now you're mine." And she said, "After that, it was fine." Okay. The other spirit backed off. Um, Thomas, who was a guy in his forties, he had a completely new personality after his transplant. Before the operation, he was shy and introverted. After the transplant, he started wearing his baseball cap on sideways and he just turned into this, like, big talkative kid. He was like a nine-year-old boy in a grown man's body. And his wife would bring him to the meetings and he'd have, like, a little lunchbox, Superman <laughs> lunchbox. He was totally dependent on her. Like, over like the course... A bag course- of marbles or something would come out. <laughs> yeah, he'd get distracted easy. And over the course of the meetings, he eventually got his old self back and became mature again. But he was convinced that his heart came from a teenage boy who was killed in New York. And from the very start, he was absolutely convinced the donor had been black. This was never confirmed. He just had this inner knowing. Um, Now, Thomas had come from a prejudiced background. That's all they say. Wasn't a fan of the uh, Negroes, you could say. And after the transplant, he became far more comfortable with black people. Good. The story ends well. He even became enamoured with one of the hospital nurses 
who looked like Tina Turner. <laughs> Again, this is another dead ass moment, right? The first time, this was the first time he had ever been attracted to a black woman. He started identifying with blacks in general, not only African-Americans, but just Africans in general. Like, he was surprised to find himself affected by a, a news report he was reading about a civil war in Ethiopia. And he would be sitting there at the dinner table. Was he a refugee? No, he's, the, the just, donor, though. Just, he's just, they're the brothers now, right? So he's just reading this newspaper and he's like, my brothers, they are shooting each other. I don't like it. And his wife's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, you're a 40-year-old white guy. What are, you, what are you worried about Ethiopia for? And he, he's just really upset about uh, the, the blacks on each side in Ethiopia shooting each other. Uh, and he's disappointed that his wife doesn't look like Tina Turner anymore. And he said, I believe my donor's spirit is still around. And in that sense... He's still alive. So eventually they kind of, it's like if you listen to some of the stories from surgeons who have spoken out about this, they say it eventually fades for most people. Yeah, I was wondering if it dissipates because maybe if it's not, okay, one of the things could be occurring, if it's spirit attachment, they, for the corny term, go into the light. Yeah. Or do they dislodge and go into someone else? Or there's a merging of sorts or they just sit in the background. Mm. Uh, Mario was another one. He was this energetic former shipbuilder. He's in his early 50s. He got the heart of a man who was half his age. Uh, and his wife noticed a bunch of change in habits. He never liked bananas. Now that's all he wanted to eat. Uh, he rarely bothered with with dessert. Now he would just eat tons of chocolate cake. Um, he was always fastidiously neat, but after the transplant, he was totally relaxed. He could leave stuff anywhere. Um, and he he very much liked the uh, the horseshoe throwing game. It was just his hobby. Like, he was a master at it. Oh, it's just like a new acquired skill. It's just a thing he was into. Maybe there was, like, a club that played it or something. He was just really good at it. As soon, after the transplant, he was terrible at it. He couldn't even get the shoe. Oh, so he lost it. He couldn't even get the shoe close to it. And he would actually get pissed off at his heart. And he would throw, like, a crappy throw. He'd be like, you dumbass. You can't even reach the pit. And he'd be, like, yelling at his heart so, like it's another person. What that suggests, though, I mean, because we've spoken about this idea before, about the idea that the the brain is responsible for memory and skill and and that kind of thing. But then there's also been, you know, ancient philosophers which thought it was the heart. Yeah. So it's exactly. almost like, is that knowledge somehow retained in the heart? And because he's had a transplant, he's lost it. Speaking of knowledge being retained, he was convinced that whoever he got, whoever was his donor, was um, someone who wasn't active. It was someone who sat around all day or, you know, didn't exercise because he just felt restricted by this heart, even though it was a younger donor. And about a year after his transplant, he had this experience that totally shook him up. He and his wife were visiting relatives in the Boston area and they walked into this church just randomly. He wanted to go in there. And Mario immediately recognized it. As what? Well, he he just, it was deja vu. He knew this place. And he says to his wife, have we been here before? She says, we've never been here. Well, that's what I'm asking. Is it a location that he knew that he had consistently gone to. He'd never been there before. Uh, but the priest looked familiar to him and Mario knew his way around. And he led his wife upstairs to a certain pew and he said, I've been here before. And she again, she says, you've never been to this church. I've never, we've never been here before. And he said, that morning I had no doubt that this was his church or my, or the donor's church. And he said, I believe there's another spirit in me 
and that we finally bonded together and somehow made a life for both of us. So he was convinced his his donor was like a scholarly priest or something yeah. from the church. Um, but after that experience, they they merged. Uh, there's a story of Lorna. Uh, she was young in her early 20s, blonde, curly hair. She was the youngest member of the group. She was the only re- recipient who got a heart from a donor who was way older than she was. So when she recovered from her surgery, her friends were like, woo, let's go out and party. She's like, oh, I don't think I'm interested in that anymore. You go off and have some fun. And she said her um, her friends all dropped away because they couldn't relate to her anymore. Yeah. She just wanted to sit around and... Uh, knit. I don't, yeah, knit. <laughs> she just wanted to knit and do bingo. Mm. <laughs> um, and the, the interesting thing about Lorna is is this shows the the dark side and and why you don't want to necessarily merge your karmic destiny with someone else's. Oh, so yeah, the karma merging is interesting. Because of all the heart recipients I've known, Claire said, Lorna had the most terrifying experiences. After her transplant, she was confronted with ghostly images that were so unearthly they kept her awake at night. She was seeing some really dark thing. Uh, one afternoon, her psychologist kind of sat her down and asked her about these ghostly figures she was seeing. And she said she was seeing images of a woman carrying a young child. She says, I see this woman lying in bed on the respirator with her parents around her. And I see this during the day. And she said, then it just started happening at night as well. She says, when I turn off the TV, I look in the doorway, I see this white shadow. It's this image of the woman. I, it's got to be the donor. And she basically floats towards her, gets really close, like a Japanese horror movie, and then just kind of fades into her. Uh. And she's absolutely terrified by it. Now, the psychologist is like, look, does, does it have any intention? And she says, I can't figure it out. Sometimes there's uh, two more images. They're dark and they, they terrify me. So apparently there's two hooded beings that seem confused at the situation. She says they they have like implements. They have sometimes an axe or a knives, like they, they're coming to get me. She says they come closer and closer. They'll come in the doorway and stand over my, my bed. She says it's as though they're trying to tell me that I shouldn't be there or that I shouldn't have lived. The friendly white cloud is trying to tell me something and the dark images are trying to scare me or take me away. Now he's like, look, can you tell me more about the identity of these black beings? And she says, look, they're hooded. They don't really have a face. Uh, I always get a strange chill when I see them. They're never touching the ground. They're always floating. They come from my daughter's bedroom across the hall and they they come quickly to the door and then come to the bed. Uh, she says, I just have a sense that they want to harm me or warn me about something. Um, Carrying a weapon doesn't seem like they're trying to help you. So uh, this is really intriguing and it reminds me of stories. I remember there was one we did from from China where this guy, uh, remember he got knocked over the head and he became like a, he, he's working for death. Yeah, that's like right. Like he was a collection yeah. man. Yeah. The death would basically yeah, give him a name on a scroll and it'd be like, okay, you need to go get this guy. And he would, in his spirit form, he would go and find this guy who's like dying of a heart attack and like, all right, you're, you're coming with me and yep. take him to the underworld. Yep. It's like these guys with the hoods, they're working for death. They've got they've got someone who needs to go. I don't actually think it's the woman that's received the transplant. 
I think because what we were pointing out before, the donor in some way is still alive. The spirit is still there. It's still tethered to the organs. So when these messengers for death, the delivery men turn up to collect, you know, whoever has to face their, you know, karmic destiny, they're like, what's going on? You, we need to take you, but now you're inside this other woman? Like maybe they're not trying to scare the recipient. They're trying to scare the spirit of the donor. Yeah, to retrieve it, but they can't because it's tethered because of this unnatural thing. Yeah, she's stuck. Uh, and then there's Joseph, uh, who, again, received a, a heart from a much younger man. He uh, played baseball after the transplant, and uh, when he tried to throw, his arm was so powerful, he actually injured himself. Hmm. Like He just had so much more throughout energy. Throughout his shoulder. Yeah, throughout his shoulder. Uh, but there's this weird thing with him. It's because in the spirit world, he was just sunning his balls all the time. Well, he, he knew that maybe his donor must have come from like a young, you know, very healthy teenager. Because for some reason, he, he got his transplant in late October um, and he was recovering and it was Halloween when he was recovering. And that night, he he dreamt that he just begged to be let out of the hospital. He's like, it's Halloween. i got to go trick-or-treating. Come on, let me out. And pretty weird request because this guy's in his 40s. <laughs> He's obviously not interested in trick-or-treating. But in this very vivid dream, the hospital authorities let him go out on trick-or-treating, like, as long as you don't come back too late. <laughs> like So the next morning, right, the nurses come to, um, you know, empty his catheter and take out his urine and all that sort of stuff. And they're like, have you been out drinking beer all night? Because he pissed like a racehorse. Like, he had gallons and gallons of piss. It did not make sense. And they, they were all joking, like, it's as, almost as if he's been out drinking with his friends all night. So maybe he's because when you is it um when you drink alcohol it affects your antidiuretic hormone. So maybe it's like somehow yeah. caused it to actually yeah. take place. So the spirit of his donor has actually gone out on a drinking binge, thrown some toilet paper and some trees, and drunk a, a bunch of cast wine as a teenager and pissed a huge amount and just come back and now the the receiver is just pissing everywhere. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, and as soon as he woke that next morning, he said. He wants to come out. I could feel his force holding my fists, running his course. And, you know, it's this common feeling that this claustrophobic sense of being held down while this living force is trying to escape you. So, again, there's this, this confusion element as well. Like sometimes the, the donor spirit still thinks that it's a living person or still wants to experience physical life. Um, and, again, Claire's stories from here, I mean, I'm running long on this episode, there's a great story where, remember, she knows that the donor's just young. He loved motorcycles. She she makes friends with this guy and the guy invites her over to his house and she walks in and there's just motorcycle, like there's trophies everywhere. And she's like, well, where'd you get these trophies? She thinks maybe he's a golfer or a tennis player. And he's like, I ride motorcycles. And she's just <laughs> wet everywhere. <laughs> she's just like, she's so turned on. She can't explain why. She hates motorcycles. But he just says, I ride motorcycles. And she's, oh, immediately. She's she's just enamored with this guy. So she's a, what, 
bikey? Is that what's what's the deal? Well, her donor is loves motorcycles, so there's something that it gets her erotic though. <laughs> yeah, she loves it, and she has this very sexy fling with this younger guy in great detail in the book. Uh, and she she takes her he takes her rollerblading, and like they do all this crazy extreme sports stuff, and she's totally loving it. But there's moments where she she catches herself, and she's like, "What the hell am I doing? I'm." I'm turning 50 in a few months. It's just completely bizarre. And after she breaks up with this fling with this guy, she's like, um, I'm going to buy some tickets to France. And she just goes off to France. And she says, it's not like I'm a middle-aged woman uh, booking some nice hotels and having some soirees with my friends in Paris as we buy some nice clothes. It's like spring break... Uh, you know, a year off college, let's go to Paris, have sex with everyone we see, we'll sleep in hostels, we'll take drugs, we'll drink alcohol. And she says she was just led around Paris on this crazy whirlwind tour and it really became her heart was leading her everywhere and controlling her thinking. And there were moments where she'd get on a train to go somewhere else and she's like, oh, what the hell am I doing? I'm too old for this. Like, this is crazy. And then it's like, well, off we go. And her heart would take over and she, she just felt like she was being literally dragged by her heart across Europe on this insane trip. You know, she really thought that she was starting to be controlled by someone else. She said, someone else actually purchased this ticket to France. It wasn't me. I, I felt like we were two people sharing the same body. It is scary though, isn't it? Because it means that, is there a possibility that if you have a transplant, can you suffer from spirit attachment? I think that's kind of what's possession. going on. I think it's what's, it's a weird form of it. Well, and control as well. It's a strange form of it because the, the donor spirit doesn't seem to have a choice either. Like it's somehow, no, there is some somehow tether connected. to the physical body. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we've heard this, you know, we've heard this so many times about people having out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, mm. looking back at their body and seeing it being attached by that silver cord. Mm. What happens if you don't cut that cord fully? Well, long story short, she eventually goes to this uh, mystery dinner one night with her family. It's, it's 1990, humid Friday night. Um, and there's a bunch of other people there that she doesn't really know. And this man approaches her because... She's explained to all her friends why she has so many pills. And she's like, oh, you know, I had this transplant. Well, and she pills. explains it. Uh, and this stranger walks up to her and he goes, you know, I couldn't help over here that uh, you had a transplant. She's like, yeah, yeah. Do you know who the donor is? She's like, no. And uh, yeah, I don't really know. All I know is 18 and he's a, he was riding a motorcycle. I don't really know anything else. He's like, well, I'm a rainbow walker. What she's, the hell is a rainbow she's walker? Like, what? what? A rain, I walk between the rainbows. <laughs> he, so Where she immediately thinks this is some corny pickup line, but he claims he's a psychic and he's so fascinated with her case. He's like, you know, we, maybe we can figure something out. Maybe we can find out who it is. Um, and it's like she thinks that he wants to take her out on a date, but she's not quite sure. So she agrees to meet him the next day for coffee or something. And he basically calls her in the middle of the night. And he's like, I just had a dream. I just had a dream about like Tim, this guy named Tim. And he died on a motorcycle. Like she has all these, he has all these details that she hasn't told him. Um, and he gets this idea. Actually, he has a dream about a newspaper and reading the obituary of the guy that died. That's what he dreams of. I couldn't remember. Um, and she's like, I hadn't thought of that, the obituary. 
So together they go to a bunch of libraries in New England and they start going through the newspaper reports of the the week that she got or the day that she got the it would have been the week the week that she got the transplant. Yeah. And she finds it. She finds the kid. It's Timothy LaSalle. Uh, he, his cause of death was a motor, motorcycle accident. All the details there. And through this information, she calls the family. She sets up a meeting. They're very cautious. Like they're, they're like, who is this lady? How the hell did she find us? But she eventually meets them and explains the dream, explains the story. The whole family arrives. And it's this really heartwarming, healing connection for both Tim's family. Yeah, you often hear that. And Claire. Yeah. They're convinced that she has the energy of their sibling and their son. Um, but and did the Rainbow Walker somehow pick up on the mother reading the obituary? Is like, where did he get the... He just ha- he claims just he it. has this psychic ability and yep. he just uses it to pick up old ladies, apparently. <laughs> um, but what she learns is that, well, they confirm he has endless energy. So Tim would never sit still. Even as a kid, they couldn't babysit him. He'd just be running off everywhere. Even as he grew older, he worked three jobs. He was on the move nonstop. Obviously loved riding his motorcycles fast and his cars fast, loved doing everything fast. And she's like, that's what I've been going through. Like, This is why I've been traipsing around Europe for the last three months, being led by my heart. And she says to them in just this moment of sitting down with them, she says, he didn't like green peppers, did he? And they're like, are you kidding? Everything he ate, he put green peppers on it. He just used to eat boiled up bags of green peppers that was his favorite food the only thing he liked more than green peppers was chicken nuggets he just loved chicken nuggets it was his favorite food and she's like oh my god that's the first thing i ate when i could drive and i just ate all these chicken nuggets um and they kind of it's this warming heartwarming moment where they all go out to dinner afterwards and she orders chicken nuggets uh in his honor with bell peppers green bell <laughs> yeah, peppers. with bell peppers and ultimately, she has this dream of of a 22 motorcycles being drawn behind a car. It's this really weird dream. And like Tim's in there in the dream with her. And she's like, why is there 22 motorcycles in this dream? Was it his funeral? And she realizes that day was the was actually his 22nd birthday. That she uh, happens to have oh, this dream. Oh, okay. Right? And she realizes I should do something. So she calls a friend who owns a motorcycle and she goes on this dancing night where they go to all these dancing places and she's on the back of this motorcycle doing this kind of ritual for him. And she said, this ritualization of his birthday and something to do with the motorcycles, it actually gently released his spirit. She said, I had finally achieved my new ident- identity. I was a kind of third being. I wasn't the old Claire and I wasn't Tim either. I, I was the merged a new being. person with still a part of him, but... Yeah, merged soul. She said after that moment, he stepped aside and mm. his spirit left and she can't, could kind of finally get on with her life. So fascinating story. I'll just hit, hit the highlights for you there. I'll, I'll link to the book in the show notes. I, it's really interesting because at the end, they have um, ideas from people like Gary Schwartz, Brian Weiss, um, James Van Pra, the spiritual medium, he thinks it's some kind of spirit possession. Um, Weiss mentions psychometry. Like he's like, if you can pick up stuff about someone from a pen they used, of course, if you have their yeah, body organs. part inside yeah. you, then maybe there's some kind of psychometric effect 
um, that, that takes hold. Guaranteed you there is. But it's more that it seems like there's an intelligence behind it as well. Otherwise, why would people have all these dreams and motivations? Uh, and Paul Pearsall as well, uh, he believes that when you get the heart, you're getting obviously not just the physical cells, you're getting all this energy from the person. Um, he says that's why you're getting all this information. The information is not stored in our brains. Memories aren't stored in our cells in our brains. It, it works in another way. And when you get someone's energy, you're getting a part of their spirit. And of course, if from a panpsychic view, energy isn't some inert thing. It's intelligent. No, it's it's a alive. living thing, yeah. Everything has consciousness. Everything is alive. When you take a piece of someone else, you're taking a piece of their spirit. You're taking a piece of their mind. And their karma, evidently. Yeah, and their karma. Because mm. uh, you have weird hooded beings haunting you. So I'll also link to Paul Pearsall's book, The Heart Code, which we covered a few years ago. If you want oh, to that dig was great. A, if you want to dig a bit deeper into this uh, and A Change of Heart, a memoir is uh, on paperback on Amazon, of course. I'll link to that as well. That's a wrap for that segment. Thanks for explaining MH370. That was oh, amazing. I'm actually going to go back and reread the book because there were just so many moments when I was going through it today that I was just like, oh my God. Like it was just, it was actually shocking when you see this, the, the evidence of data that was erased and cover-ups that were committed and yet they weren't always perfect so there were little things that would pop up that would just go no but what about this and I don't know it's very very disturbing and I think that we're entering into a new world that who knows well, how we're going there, to find there'd be stuff like that that goes on all the time all the that time. we're never going to hear about there'd all be the back, there's backdoor channels there's backdoor deals made I mean this will just be normal diplomacy but some, seen- sometimes you know it's like is that something that really should be hidden from the tr- from uh, the public? Uh, absolutely, it shouldn't. You know, and and this is the thing, and it makes you wonder now about MH17 because there were a few details in there about how the call sign or the tailplane, you know, indicator had been changed, and I'm like, that was the one that was shot over Russia. Yeah, MH17 was shot down in Ukraine, Ukraine, shot, right. and that was horrible. And so many Australians were on board that, and uh, that was flying. I think it was flying from Amsterdam back to Singapore. And that was terrible because, I mean, and it's all online. There was, everything was filmed of people that had, you know, died in the yeah. aircraft. And, you know, um, there's conspiracy theories out there that the aircraft that was involved in MH17 was actually the aircraft from MH370. And What? Yeah, it's, it's really, and in light of this, this book now, I just go, hmm, is there something, something to that? It's just all what, horrible. What I don't get about it is the, the technology being stolen, right? For the US to do something so drastic that they would shoot down or try and, you know, hijack, make this plane disappear is such an elaborate, uh, almost desperate attempt to stop their technology from being stolen, right? Yeah. But at the, in the same breath, the, the Chinese military can just hack into, the, I mean, they've done this, they've hacked into defense corporations computers they steal stuff all the time they steal billions of dollars worth of stuff every single year so what made what made whatever was on that plane so important that they wouldn't be able to let it go when they're letting stuff go the american military the american uh, system is letting stuff go to the ccp by the truckload every single year the only answer i would have to that and it's just me misspitballing is that is it possible that uh, there was a specialized material that you actually they needed? It wasn't just having the information; they actually needed the material to be able to create it themselves. Or mm. 
generate it somehow. Was it Bigfoot on board? Yeah, I mean, that could be as well. It could be a Bigfoot. rotting mangosteens? (laughs) Think about it. They would have covered up the smell. (laughs) Think about it. That's true. There was the first, like, Bigfoot corpse was on that plane. The Chinese wanted it for genetic engineering. Possibly. To create super soldiers. And obviously they can't let Bigfoot being... Maybe. ...let out into the public sphere. So they had to take it out. I think this is just very typical of being human, right? We're human. And the whole plan was just to to land the aircraft and get it. And now obviously it didn't go to plan. So the only option they had, they were like, we're going to shoot it down. That's the only option. Although why they use a laser? I was like, why would they use But what I thought about, right? If they use ordnance, mm. that's forensics. You will leave a oh, trace. Oh, wow, yeah. So if you use a laser, of course, there's it no doesn't trace. leave a trace. Jewish space laser. <laughs> it's not Jewish space laser. It's just lasers. I'll link to uh, the secret Jewish space laser core enamel mini pin available for fourteen ninety five at descentpins.com if you want you to pick one up. Two of those, please. It's, um, if you get five of them, you get 10% off. You can give them all to your family. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what do you do for a job? And you just show them your pin. <laughs> it says secret Jewish space laser core mozzle tough. Tough. But, but tough. Mozzle it's tough. No, instead of yeah. tough, it's tough. Brilliant. That's awful. (laughs) That's a wrap for this show. Thank you so much for being on Plus. Have a great weekend. We'll catch you on Tuesday for your next MU. See you then.